Hello, and welcome back to MetaStation. I'm Claire. I'm a 34-year-old writer in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I am a 34-year-old uh, English professor in Mississippi. And I totally forgot, Claire, that this is the three months of the year we're the same age. Yes. I was like, wait, you said 34, and I was like, I'm 34. <laughs> wait, what? Yeah, no, we're, we're in the window for like another month, like month and change, I think. Yeah, yeah. And then I they so. go back to being older and wiser. But for now. Ha 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 Right now we're equals. We're temporarily peers. I'll be milking this for my own benefit. <laughs> I heard you slow down and thinking as you were saying your age and I was like, does she not remember how old she is? <laughs> well, I mean, I maybe do actually forget how old I am on a regular basis. But in this case, it was because you said 34 and my mind went like, wait, like record scratch. Uh, Isn't she supposed to be older us. than me? I love us. So what were we saying before we went off on this tangent? I'm leaving all this in, by the way. <laughs> yes, you should. Uh, we are. This is the thing where we do the thing where we talk about episodes 102 and 103, Earth Skills and Earth Kills. <laughs> Good job, Jason Rothenberg. It's very, very clever. Oh, man. Things are getting weird, kids. So we thought we'd start today with talking about kind of what's going on at the arc and the arc politics sort of side of the story, both in 102 and 103. So Jaha's out of play for most of the pilot. He kind of comes in at the end like we talked about last time. And so 102 really is where it introduces what's going to become sort of the core dynamic of that half of the story for the rest of the season, which is Jaha with the power to make decisions and Kane on one side advocating for something and Abby on the other side advocating for something else and them sort of headbutting. So 102, I feel like, is where that really becomes super explicit and lays the groundwork for, you know, at least for the first, like, three quarters of season one, like, up until the explosion when everyone's kind of more united. This is really the dynamic that we're working with, these set of relationships. Yeah. And it was interesting, I think even more so after rewatching the pilot, but with this one in particular, and with 103, you know, I'm really remembering how much more I liked Jaha than Kane in these yeah. first few episodes. It was even more clear in this pairing, I thought, even than it was in the pilot where he kind of comes in as a deus ex machina to save abby you know in 102 they're making the case to him about should they wait to see what's going on with the kids abby wants to wait until they have more information abby's still holding on to hope and kane is making the very reasonable point that every day they wait is 10 more people that they're going to have to float to mm -hmm. save oxygen and it really presents jaha i think as trying to be deliberate and non-impulsive in the choices that he's making. Yeah, especially in that first conversation, that scene where first Abby comes in and treats Jaha's wound mm -hmm. as an excuse to talk to him. And then Kane comes in, you know, and I think that scene is very carefully set up to show Jaha as being kind of like deliberating, right? Like being the neutral one who sort of concedes somewhat to both Abby and Kane, but then also warns them both. He tells Kane, you have to know when not to follow the rules. Yeah. But, you know, he's also kind of pushing back at Abby. Like the function of that scene it's doing a lot, obviously. It's telling us, here are the sides. It's letting Abby make her case, supposedly to Jaha, but also to the audience, and then Kane make his case 
to Jaha and the audience. But it's also telling us that Jaha is going to be the sort of neutral, in the middle, seeing both sides character. I had forgotten until I watched it again, a lot of what goes on between Jaha and Kane in their half of the scene is a really nice, subtle kind of continuation of the narrative sleight of hand where we're being gently guided to believe that Kane was probably the person who was behind the assassination attempt because we first kind of get that from the conversation that happens with Shumway and the pilot about like, you're in charge now, you can do whatever you want to and that kind of plans to see it. And then in this one, Jaha kind of comes out and says it, you know, he says who benefits most from my death. And it's what sets up this attempted murder mystery almost. And so you're sort of rooting for Jaha because the audience is being pulled into think we're watching Jaha put the pieces together that his second in command tried to kill him. And Kane's sort of defensive response to that is exactly what he would do and say if he had been the person behind it. The narrative really positions you even more aggressively in 102 to be on Abby's side and discount everything that Kane is saying, even when he's making a reasonable point, because he's being clearly framed, I mean, clearly framed as not just the antagonist, but a villain. Framed is the right word, like framed for Jaha's attempted murder by the narrative, like literally. Yeah, literally. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember finding myself the first time I watched this, 100% Team Jaha. Because I felt like, oh, he's so crafty. He's figured out already that it was Kane and he's trying to let him know, like, I know what you're doing. Which is why then later the reveal that he wasn't is sort of shocking because it's planted almost too heavy handedly, clearly, you know, in this mm-hmm. episode. And then that's laid against the continuing, like, rise of Abby Griffin's superhero. You know, and all those scenes between her and Jackson where she is just running around trying to think of like any single last thing that she can think of Mm -hmm. to make the case for what it could possibly mean that the kids wristbands are going out one by one, you know, and she's just desperately hunting for a solution, which leads her to, of course, the introduction of everyone's favorite character. (laughs) Raven God, she gets one of the best character entrances in this whole fucking show. She really does. I remember watching it the first time and just feeling like when Raven does a somersault into the airlock (laughs) and then she takes off that helmet and smiles it was like angels from heaven singing oh yeah it's just like oh my god like I already love you. Yeah, Instantly, yeah. right away, like before you've even said a word. Yeah. If you don't like instantaneously fall in love with Raven Reyes, I actually don't really know what to think of you as a human being. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the best part of that whole scene, just besides how clearly within 15 seconds her character is developed, you know, that she's funny and sassy and tough and a little flirty and a total sass fans but she's also brilliant because she has already figured out before anyone else in the entire arc has that the story about the emergency accidental ejection of the ship was a lie like she's the first person who is putting the pieces together and then the whole rest of her arc of kind of sleuthing around sneaking through the air then spying on abby raven's brain is immediately like she's putting pieces together before anybody else is so she's the first person on the arc that figures out something went wrong with the ship she figures out that the quarantine story is bullshit and then she figures out and tells abby they're taking off the bracelets so it's so beautiful because it's like the first kind of glimmer of a 
hope that you get in the arc storyline that maybe just maybe they will figure this all out in time comes from Raven being yeah. smarter than anybody else. We talked last time about how impressed we were rewatching with how quickly and vividly they established our main characters, you know, how instantaneously we know so much important and like gripping information about Clark in that first 30 seconds and how clear and vivid Jasper and Monty are and, and Bellamy is and so on. And I think Raven is another example of that, where in that introduction, that character is just so, so well done and so vivid. Again, she like does that that somersault into the airlock, which shows that she's sort of playful and a little bit irreverent. She kind of is like flirty and fun and super confident. And then like instantaneously, she's also, it's, it's partly exposition, but she notices the no damage to the airlock. But again, like you said, it's also telling us she's astute. This yeah. is a character. Nothing gets past her. She's very smart. She's very perceptive. She's very determined. If she feels like something is amiss, she doesn't give up on it. You know, again, like it's a testament to how well she's written in that introduction. And then also to Lindsay Morgan, of course, I think how quickly oh, we yeah. all just like cathect to Raven. Oh, yeah. And they actually do like a pretty nice job too, just in terms of like with the little dropped in lines when Abby says like, you're the youngest, you know, I looked you up, you're the youngest zero G mechanic in 50 years and Raven says 52. So what? And it's just like, it's like little lines like that. Yeah. Um, and so well delivered by Lindsay Morgan, but just little lines like that where they really in one episode, they sort of establish her so well for who she is. Because she's clearly so quick and brilliant and astute, it feels really optimistic and satisfying that they place her pretty quickly in that storyline as an ally to Abby, who has almost no ally. Yes. I think part of what makes the culling so heartbreaking and makes that moment where they see the fireworks and the signals from the kids just too late is because it's sort of presented like, Oh God, they've lost contact with the kids, but the kids are alive, but they don't know that. And everyone thinks that they're dying and Abby's trying to find hope and what's she going to do? And then along comes this totally brilliant engineer who's going to be able to figure everything out. She's already put half the pieces together. So someone's going to go down the dropship. So you think like, yes, Abby's going to save the day, you know, and so it's building up this sense of optimism that you feel all of a sudden Abby has somebody on her team who can help her win, like that they're going to be okay. The gut punch of the culling, like the seeds for the depth of that gut punch, they were like the huge emotional impact of when we get to the culling in episode four is set up here. You get this whole different side of Abby. You get, there's a lightness to Abby in 102 that we haven't seen in the pilot because there's hope suddenly and Raven just brings this, hell yeah, I can do it. Hell yeah, I can fix this hundred year old Russian escape pod for you. Like, hell yeah, we're going to Earth and make sure that my mysterious unnamed person that I love and your daughter are going to be okay. And then you're like, yeah, and it's so cheerworthy, you know. And I think you're right. I think that it is, it lays the groundwork for how devastating it is by what a narrow margin of time they miss each other. There's such a tonal shift towards a win being possible for Abby with the entrance of Raven. Mm -hmm. And then also with the little parallel they plant to tell you in 102 that Finn is the the boyfriend that Raven is talking about, yeah. which I totally missed the first time through. Oh. I totally missed it. And the second time, I don't 
how I missed it, really. Because it is so odd. Like, they, they cut directly from the two-headed deer directly to Raven's necklace. But I think, like, it's subtle enough that if you don't know that that connection is coming, then you might not, like, consciously put together how those two things are connected. Yeah. But then going through, you know, in later rewatchings, it's like, ooh, <laughs> there it is. You know, that's interesting in, in the ways that Raven in 102 is so carefully setting up everything that's going to come around and happen in 104, which is just, it's really well written. And again, this is just luck of casting, really. But Paige Turco and Lindsay Morgan have such great chemistry the first time oh that they God, sort of yeah. meet and talk. The way that they play off each other is just fantastic. You know, I think their dynamic really makes their kind of partnership you know, the kind of like partners in crime relationship on the arc really, really click. It makes you really want to root for those two characters right away. I mean, you know, you want to root for Abby anyway, and you want to root for Raven anyway, but together they, they really have like a nice dynamic really very quickly. So just another instance, I think, of, <laughs> of how they lucked out in terms of actor chemistry on the show. I think part of why their relationship is so satisfying right away is that it's all framed like, you know, this is like, pair of little rebels hiding out in this deserted floor of the ship up to this crazy ass plan that Abby has just come up with. Jaha gives her a 10 day extension to prove that the kids are alive and her solution is I'm just gonna go to Earth myself. You know like, an, like Abby's not a pilot <laughs> Yeah, Abby has no idea what the fuck she's doing or what she's even gonna do when she gets there. Like the radios aren't fixed she's like I'm just gonna like Literally shoot myself at the surface of the earth and hope for the best is basically and hope Abby's to God plan. that it works out. <laughs> Which again, like classic Abby. Clark or bust is basically Abby's plan. You know, and then we get this even more in, you know, in 104 when you have the really sort of oppressive influence of Kane. Like, it be, like that they're hiding out from Kane and Kane tracking Abby and the whole thing about hiding what they're doing, you know, from the council because it's super against the rules and illegal. So you're immediately rooting for Abby because we, the audience, know that she's right and the kids are alive, but also that her partnership with Raven is so exciting and satisfying to watch and they ramp up the stakes so well. You know, they're on the clock, they've got nine days, it's an almost but not quite impossible task, and Raven is this incredibly compelling, brilliant character where you're like, of course she's going to make it work. It infuses a sense of hope into that storyline, in contrast with where you can see Kane campaigning the council for people to support him, and how overbearing and totalitarian he is in that council meeting, trying to sort of bully everyone into giving him his way. So it's just interesting, I think, rewatching it now with the context of who they both become, and realizing how much of the way Kane is presented is inaccurate, you know, or or is is misleading, or is shaped very much by the way that we've been prompted to sympathize with Abby in large part because we know we as an audience know that she's right. And I think this is another thing that struck me rewatching 102 is what a very, very careful and excellent job they do with this calling storyline in setting up two sides between Kane and Abby that really both are totally valid. And we're on Abby's side because, like you said, Abby represents hope. And they do such a nice job of, like, selling you on that hope, showing you that hope, showing you that what's driving her is a sort of, like, faith and love. 
and this idea of not giving up. It's so appealing to hear Abby say, hope is everything. It's a nice message. It's a much nicer message than Kane, Mr. Pragmatist, who says, we have X amount of oxygen and Y number of people. We have to kill Z number of people in order to live. And he's right. He is factually correct, but it's not very appealing. And I think they do that very deliberately, setting us up to sort of be on Abby's side. And, and obviously by framing Cain as the attempted murderer, it makes you less likely to listen to right. him. But he does have a really good case. And I think if you set aside the fact that we happen to know that Abby is right and that we're sort of prompted to side with her and just think about if you cut out everything else and we were just watching what was happening on the arc or just watching Abby, she would look kind of crazy. You know, like oh, at the yeah. very beginning of this episode, Jackson even says to her, they're, they're looking at the, you know, the display and talk about how many kids are dead. And Jackson says, this is how radiation would present. And she said, it could be something else. It could be something else. But Jackson is right. You know, I mean, we know that it's something else. We know that it's Murphy being an asshole holding a kid over the fire to make it hurt for a little while before they take off the bracelets because it looks more real. But in terms of who in that control room is looking at the evidence and coming to the most likely or the best conclusion, it's Jackson. And Abby is just running on, I refuse to believe that. So I am going to look for other explanations for that data, which is like, there are ex other explanations for that data. But if you don't happen to know that those kids down there are actually not dying of radiation, then she really has no basis to believe that. So when you think about it from that direction, you know, Kane looks like a villain, but he has a good point. And this, I think, especially in the council meeting. I really love that scene. That's a fantastic scene. They lay it out so clearly in that debate where Abby's saying, hang on to hope, give them a chance, you know, give me a chance. And Kane says, 10 people a day. The next vote we have is in 10 days. That's 100 people. So like it's, it's, it's laid out for you on the table right there. Abby is gambling a hundred lives. They set up really clearly in that scene the real stakes of the ticking clock, which is that engineering needs six months to fix life support, but they'll be out of oxygen in four months. Yes. That's a concrete piece of information that backs up everything that Kane is saying. That's a new reveal of just how high the stakes are. And it really, I think, evens out the scales in terms of understanding exactly why he's going the direction that he's going. And it isn't because, like, it isn't because he's a murderer who wants people to die. It isn't because he's a bad person. It's math and science. The choices that you make to keep your people alive are that sometimes you have to sacrifice a small group of individuals for the greater good. And Jaha, and this is, and honestly, this is one of my favorite Jaha scenes. I love his monologue about them being a transitional generation. I think it's so important. It reminds you that they're in a situation that none of them were trained or prepared for. And, and not just the three of them, but like all of the adults, the whole council, everyone in the arc. None of the people who are alive right now thought getting humanity back to Earth was ever going to be their responsibility. That's for our grandchildren's children. And so when Jaha talks about we're either going to be the generation that brings mankind back to Earth or the generation on whose watch it dies out forever. And it's like in some ways, I think it explains a little and kind of contextualizes a little 
about the reasoning why he is sometimes frustratingly slow to make decisions or abdicates making decisions. Like in this one, like his decision is not to decide. I think it's in some ways, it's like one of his most vulnerable moments. It's like Jaha saying, we didn't ask for this. He didn't know when he ran for chancellor, however long ago that was, that he was going to have to be the chancellor who made this set of choices. The malfunction of the oxygen filters has basically changed everything about what they thought their jobs and their lives and the role of this council were going to be. And so it sort of reminds you that the people who are currently in this position weren't necessarily chosen because of their ability to make this set of decisions. I think that explains a lot about Kane too. Kane's job was just to like keep humanity alive, you know, just keep following the rules, keep following the Exodus charter. You're just marking time. And then somebody else down the road later will figure out this whole Exodus ship business. I think there's something really important to hold on to and to remember about Abby and Kane and Jaha that comes from the way he talks in that council meeting scene, that all of them are flying blind because of this thing that just sort of fell into their laps. And they're all sort of flailing and unprepared a little bit. And I think that Jaha is more measured in how he responds to it. But I think it just sort of goes to remind us just how much all of them are totally out of their depth. Yeah, and I I do think that there is a lot of, there's a deep humanity in Kane's perspective, and it's easy to overlook because he is making decisions on a more abstract, seemingly detached way than Abby, in that he's worried about keeping humanity alive as a kind of aggregate. Right. He's not worried about individuals, he's worried about preserving the most human. Right. Any one human is expendable or might have to go, but in the service of keeping as many others alive as he can. So there's something sort of unappealing to us in that. We don't like thinking that way. But on the other hand, if you if you look at it from another direction, the reason that he is so opposed to Abby here is not because he hates the kids and hopes they're dead. It's because the idea that waiting around on a hope that he thinks is not grounded in fact and thereby sacrificing a hundred more lives, that's abhorrent to him. He's really, really deeply concerned about those hundred lives. And it's not about an individual. It's not like, well, you know, like once we get to the 47th person, that's my mom. I don't want to get there. You know, like that's how Bellamy would make that decision. Right, right. For Kane, it's just like, that is a hundred more lives that I could have kept that now I have to get rid of those hundred lives are incredibly important. You know what I mean? So like, it's still about this like deep concern for human life. It's just coming at it from a different perspective than Abby. They have these like ways of thinking about the problem that are incompatible, but equally valid in their own ways. And Jaha can't really, he can't really decide between them. To squeeze in the why Jaha is the worst (laughs) segment The reason why his non-decision just kind of bugs me (laughs) is because his non-decision functionally is identical to him voting no on the calling, right? By not voting, Abby wins. So why doesn't he just vote yes? Why doesn't he just vote with Abby? There is no point to him refusing to vote. No point whatsoever. It is functionally the same as voting with Abby. So just vote with Abby. Like, why are you like showboating about not making a, make a decision? Because uh, you know why? Because it allows him to believe 
that he hasn't picked an option or to make it look like he didn't pick an option, but he really did. And I realized that maybe this is just me, but that really bugs me. <laughs> because he uses Abby's same language. He talks as though, you know, it, because she's the one who comes to talking about hope and she calls him out on it when she says like, hope is everything. And she tells him, you know, the chancellor I voted for, he understood that. So then when he brings it back up again in that council meeting, then he says, I don't know if my son is still alive or not, but I have hope. So everything about it is framed as though he's decided to vote with Abby. And then he's like, I side with Abby, but I don't want to get blamed if she's wrong and a hundred more people die. So officially I didn't pick one or the other, basically. So he's like going with Abby, but he's trying to avoid, it's like, he's just trying to make sure that nobody says he did the wrong thing. Yes. And also I think, I think the first time I saw it, what I wondered is if the reasoning for that was to make sure that there was a hard time limit for Abby. Like, instead of just saying like, yes, Abby's right. Take however long you need to figure this all out, Abby. Okay. But he could have given her a time limit anyway. Like he didn't need to do that. He could have said, I vote with Abby, or, or he could have said, I propose an addendum to this vote, which is Abby gets a week. I mean, he didn't, it, it doesn't even have to be 10 days. If he says no, if he doesn't vote, then it does have to be 10 days because the rules say they can't meet again to vote for 10 days. If he had voted yes with an addendum, he could have given her any number of days. He could have given her three days. He could have given her five days. And that would have saved a few dozen lives. No, I know. I know. <laughs> and like I mean really that, that's more the writer's fault than anything else because I think they wanted like that big dramatic moment where like we didn't know which way he was going to go and then oh he doesn't vote either way and then obviously like there's the dramatic tension of the 10 days and the 100 people and so on and so forth so that was kind of that was like a writing decision but just from like a from looking at things practically position it just yeah. like irks me <laughs> yeah it's a it's a procedural loophole to abdicate him not wanting to be the tiebreaker vote. Well, it's like a congressman who doesn't vote on a bill so that there isn't a record that somebody can, you know, so that when, when election season comes around, nobody can say like, he voted for this thing and a hundred people died or whatever. You know, it's just like, it's a, it's a politician move. Yeah, it is. And it removes you from complicity in the results really either way. And in a lot of ways, I think what's interesting about this here is that we definitely get more inner life of Jaha in season one than we ever get again. You know, I mean, in season two and season three, he's just turned into kind of a religious zealot. But so he's he's at least he's a person in season one, I think, in some ways that go away as soon as the City of Light storyline kind of rises up. But I think what's interesting... <laughs> You just said Jaha stops being a person once the city of light comes around. But I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> no, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. You're totally right. I just think it's like hilarious to, to put it that way. <laughs> he's a father and a chancellor. Like, he's more. Yeah, he has yeah. way more to do. He has more than one agenda. Yeah, and and he has a personality and relationships. I do think, in a lot of ways, I think one of the challenges I've had in season two and season three of this character is, you know, cutting him off from everybody else except for, like, one or two characters at a time. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that the most interesting scenes he had in both season two and season three were in the handful of episodes where he's back at the camp jostling for power with Kane and Abby again. Yep, yep. 
I think he works best in the middle of that trifecta. Like, that relationship between the three of them is really nicely built. So what I think is interesting about Jaha in season one, and particularly in this episode, we're meant to be on Jaha's side. But I think all along we see these places where the DNA of season two and season three single-minded Jaha is already kind of a little bit being planted. I don't always know how much of that was a retcon, like was he supposed to die in this season one finale, but that Jaha who can kind of let himself off the hook for anything is sort of already here. Yeah. You know, and and I don't know how much that's deliberate. Or how much they sort of look back at season one Jaha and and saw some potentialities that they decided they wanted to build on in season two or three. Because he's like, he does have that one scene, you know, I lost my son, sort of like emotional breakdown, like losing it scene. But overall, I think in a broader strokes way, we don't see the ongoing emotional cost of the culling as a weight on him in the same way that we do on Abby and Kane. You're right. And it is kind of weird. I don't always know how much of that is the performance. Like Isaiah gives such a controlled performance. Yeah. Things are very subtle and they're micro expressions and he's playing his cards very close to the vest maybe we're not meant to have a really deep look into Thelonious Draha's interior life in the same way we get into Cain and Abby's but part of me also wonders is this council meeting scene where his choice is not to go on record as a person who made a decision about this because he says, like, this was never supposed to be my fucking job, you know? Yeah, which is also kind of abdicating shit. Like, guess what? You're chancellor and this is happening. Right. So it is your job. So to start out being like, I was never supposed to have to do this. Yeah, yeah. Like, like... is he already kind of preemptively (laughs) backpedaling in a way that then is backed up by the fact that it's really Kane who carries the weight because he pushed for it like he's right to he's right to Mm -hmm. own emotional responsibility for the deaths of all those people but then jaha's response when he sees kane melting down at the eden tree is jaha says like pull your drunk ass together you son of a bitch jaha's fine right we don't not see him react to it but we don't see him feel guilt and i just wonder now if that we talked about in the, in the pilot about watching all the way through for the DNA of season two Finn. And what I'm just, I'm just thinking sort of as we're talking, I'm just wondering if I think also the DNA of season two and season three Jaha is planted in this too, in a way that makes me really curious what season four Jaha's journey is going to be. And is it going to be about him finally emotionally reckoning with all the shit that he did, not just the alley things, but all of it, because we've never really seen him have any of that kind of atonement the way that Kane does. He doesn't stay behind on the arc for any kind of penitential atonement reason like Kane wanted to. He does it because he's like, I'm the boss, this is my job. Right. And then we get that hilarious thing in season two where they spend several episodes. I mean, this is season one and season two. So this is why my, my tag for them, for Kane and Jaha together is OTP attempted murder. Because they both <laughs> keep trying to be martyrs and like snatching it away from each other. But yeah, no, I think that's that's a really good point. Because you do sort of see that starting with this council scene, there is sort of a weird pattern of Jaha 
trying to distance himself from direct responsibility for the terrible things that have happened. Like he keeps saying, my son is down there, acting as though he, as the chancellor, isn't the one who made the decision to send the kids down there. You know, like he is totally ignoring his responsibility for the kids being down there at all. And then he sort of the non vote, which allows him to basically like take no responsibility in the outcome of that debate, no matter which way it goes. And then, yeah, in season two, when he asks um, Murphy to take him to see Wells's grave, and he sort of has a moment of grief, but then he walks away from it, and it never comes up again, you know, so if there's a pattern for Jaha, it does seem to be sort of continually running away from grief and remorse. Yeah, like he will not face grief and remorse and he'll do almost anything to avoid having to take it on, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. If we're meant to believe that the reason that he dives headfirst so deeply into Ali's pain erasure, mind control thing, if we're meant to believe that that is in some way connected to not just Wells, but all of these things is a way to sort of permanently erase them, then I feel like that's a season four storyline I could be really interested in them exploring is him with that removed, with the knowledge of all of these things that he did and all of these things that he, through his agency, caused other people to do and him being back reassimilated with those people really for the first time since season one. Yeah. And having to like face them. Right, having to face them. And actually live with them for the first time since he sent them all to the ground. Yeah, so I feel like that's just something I think to watch for in, in season one as we go along is where are the places where directly or indirectly Jaha steps back from owning something or making a choice or letting himself feel something or sort of engaging in a more vulnerable way. So that he can remove himself a little. Because I think, and this I think is a good transition into the arc step into three with the flashback. It's shot very much like he's doing that with Jake. Yeah. And it's also curious that we never get to see the conversation between Jahan Abbey about the decision to float Jake. We never get to see how the decision was reached because I, I can only imagine that Abby would have tried to fight Jaha. Oh, yeah. So it's interesting that, like, it skips past that. Like, Jaha had to be the one to make that call. But all the jockeying for blame is about who told Jaha. That's what I think is so curious, is that the question in Clark's mind, and also in the way the narrative frames it, is whose fault is it that Jake is dead because Jaha was told what Jake was yeah, going to do. Yeah, as if Jaha did not have a choice. But we know he does have a choice because in 101, he pardons Abby. Right. And in 102, he tells Kane that you have to know when to when to choose not to follow the rules. Which means that implicit, what, what that implies is that Jaha chose to float Jake. And no one is saying that. Right. And, like, and you get this weird game of like three-person keep away where like, Clark is mad at Wells and then Clark is mad at Abby, but Abby's mad at Kane. Like the only person besides herself that Abby ever holds accountable for Jake's death is in the pilot. And again, it's totally possible that this was a retcon. Like it's totally possible that between the pilot being written and the rest of the season being picked up and written, that potentially Kane was supposed to have played a larger role in 
what happened to Jake, but he's the person that Abby calls out on it. And it's possible that maybe it's just him coming to arrest the third Griffin is just the last straw and she's just had it. But it's his friendship with Jake that she calls out, not Jake and Jaha watching soccer together with the kids. It's Kane who gets blamed for it because Jaha is the chancellor. Maybe it feels safer to be mad at Kane, potentially. Mm, the way it's safer for Clark to be mad at Wells. Yeah, but I wonder sometimes whether what was being set up in the pilot and the way it was framed was Jaha being the good guy and Kane being the bad guy. Because that fight that she has with Kane doesn't really square with the fact that Kane's not there at the airlock. It's Jaha who pushes the button. Kane isn't present. And for practical reasons, that's because presumably that was one of the episodes where they could afford to not have Ian on contract. So like some of, <laughs> some of these things are just how television works. But like narratively, it's framed as being about the three Griffins and Jaha and Wells. And those are the people who are involved in that story. Kane has nothing to do with it with how that story is told in 203. Yeah. I mean, I think that might be one thing, like you said, that they shifted between the pilot yeah, and 102. I think so too. Which is why they sort of pivoted then to set up Kane as being the antagonist for Abby because of the calling and not because of his role... Because of the Jake thing. ...with Jake. Yeah, because I do feel like the story that 203 is telling with all those Jake flashbacks, which are... And this is one of my favorite episodes, actually, the first season, because the Jake stuff is so important and brings out so much new stuff in every different line of the connective thread of those relationships between Clark and Wells, between Clark and her mom, between Abby and Jaha, between Wells and Jaha. The number of relationships that are shifted permanently forever by the way that that story plays out, the consequences are huge. God. I love Jake. I know. I love him so much. He's so great. You can see why Clark misses him so much and why Abby loved him so much. For so many reasons, I think Jake and Abby's relationship and the way that it's presented here is so important to everything that we get for the whole rest of the show of who Abby Griffin is. I mean, all the way up through how explicitly this episode and these events are called back in the third season when Kane's about to be executed. We talked in the pilot about economical fleshing out of characters with very minimal detail. And I feel like for the fact that we only see Jake twice in one flashback and then one hallucination, I think it's really impressive, both on the part of Chris Browning and on the part of the writing, how fully fleshed out he is and how kind of long of a shadow he casts over the course of the whole show. And I think that particularly the very little amount of detail that we need to get a complete picture of their marriage is really, really fascinating to me because we're given so little and it's just enough. One of the things that I think about a lot that is sort of a, a kind of continual source of never ending meta and conversation in the cabbie fandom is sort of the dual questions of what was Jake and Kane's relationship and what was Kane and Abby's relationship before Jake died. Because what's interesting in what you see of how she's relating to him in that scene, this is a very different Abby in a lot of ways from the reckless, no holes barred, find a rogue mechanic to repair a hundred year old Russian dropship, you know, will do absolutely anything. Abby, this is an Abby who sounds to her husband like she's making the same case that Kane made about prudence and caution. 
it sort of positions it like of the two of them, Jake was really the impulsive, reckless one in that relationship. Jake was the one who was willing to take the big, terrifying gamble in the hopes that people would respond in the way he wanted them to and that humanity would pull together and be their best selves. And that's something that we see being such a driving force in all of Abby's choices going forward. Yeah. And and I just want to say, I wouldn't call that recklessness for Jake. It's not that he's reckless. It's that he is going on faith and hope. Right. He thinks this is the right thing to do. And so we should sort of deal with the potential of that because this is the right thing to do. And then he also has faith and hope that by doing the right thing, which is telling everyone, because they have a right to know about the state of their life support, that people will react in a way that isn't going to be disastrous. I don't know if it's really fair to say Jake is reckless because he's not reckless. And Abby isn't really reckless either. But, you know, but like you said, what we see is that before he dies, there's an Abby who is much more inclined to want to go the practical, more guaranteed safe Right, route. right. Yeah. And when he's gone, you know, when they're talking about the kids, then she sounds like the Jake who is going on hope and what's right. Yeah. And that leading up to the culling, when she releases Jake's message to everybody, when she completes the plan that she stopped him from going through with, I think that's such a huge turning point for her because we see her fighting so hard against it in this episode. But I also feel like that's still the same Abby who's driven by doing anything she can to protect the people that she loves. In this case, what she's doing is she will do absolutely anything up to going and telling Jaha what he's about to do to keep her husband from dying. Yes. And I think I think the, the consistent thread with both of those, you know, like the Abby in, in the flashbacks in 103 to me, maybe primarily is an Abby who is really just terrified of losing her husband. She isn't really listening to his case for, you know, hope and faith and whatever, because all she can see is, yeah, but if this doesn't go right, then you get floated. Right, you right. Know? Like, yeah. And she just, she just doesn't want him to die. You know, like you said, like, she's worried about the people that she loves. She's really, really worried about her husband, the man that she loves, you know, and, and her daughter. And what could happen to all of them? Either just they lose Jake or, you know, who the fuck knows? It's the Ark. They might decide to float all of them. And so what's consistent between that and then the Abby of present day within the show is that, again, she's still on the side of like hope and faith and stuff because like she says, I believe in my daughter, you know, like I have faith in my daughter. Like, so it's still about Clark, still about the Clark, who's the person that she loves more than anything in the world. And she's doing whatever she has to do to protect and take care of Clark. And so, like, I think that's the kind of, like, like, Abby hasn't become someone else or whatever. Like, this is what makes it a sort of consistent shift from one situation to another, if that makes sense. I think that the connective thread is totally right there and totally clear between flashback Abby doing everything in her power to keep Jake alive and the Abby that we see in the rest of this season in present day Abby, who's doing everything that she can to keep Clark alive. This is the thing that she and Bellamy have in common. You know, she's driven fundamentally by wanting to protect people that she cares about and keep them safe. But I think that she does have that same strong sense of right and wrong. And I just, part of me just wonders, like, you know, are we meant to see from the things in her that do sort of shift around? 
I wonder if she takes on more of who Jake was after he died. I think he does, you know, because I get the sense that so much of what she's doing is kind of in honor of him. Yeah. Or to right the wrong that she feels that she did to him. God, and I just think about like how many things in this show would be different if Jake had lived. Yeah. Had you know, if Jake had made it to the ground. But I think that the flashback episode coming as early as it does, taking one whole episode out of a 13 episode season for the entirety of the arc story to be a flashback. And the show, I think, has always used flashbacks incredibly well. They're very economical about them. They always do really, really, really important character work that connects to what's happening in the present day. But I think that what this one gives us is. It tells the whole story of who the three griffins are to each other. And it shows us who Jake was within that family and the role that he played and who he was as a person in a way where the absence of that, the vacancy left by Jake's death, and the fact that then almost immediately after that, Clark was arrested and she and Abby were separated, I think tells us a huge amount about how Clark and Abby become the people that they become when we meet them in the pilot, which is that they've been through this profound loss, but they had to endure it alone. Yeah. And so for Clark, it's been sitting alone in this prison cell, hating Wells, resenting the arc and, you know, and hating the system full of fear about what's going to happen because the Ark is dying and she's the only person who knows that. So all the things are kind of going on for her. But I think that for Abby, you know, she has to have voted to send the kids to the ground. Like she, yeah. she was complicit in that choice, even though it was risking her own kid's life. But she, t- like when she and Jake are talking at the airlock, they talk a little bit like, Earth is a possibility. There is hope potentially we can get to Earth. And so I think that this two kind of side-by-side real driving threads of who Abby is in the wake of the loss of Jake are how do we find a way to get humanity to Earth to at least find out if that's possible and then secondarily through that to make sure that Clark is okay. The desperate way that she clings on to the hope that those kids aren't dying is in its own indirect way also about Jake. Please let this work so that Jake didn't die in vain. Yeah, and I mean, I was just thinking as you're talking, I don't think we're told it. I really want to know what Abby thought was going to happen when she told Jaha. Right. I get the feeling that she thought if she told Jaha and they prevented him from sending it, then he wouldn't have committed a crime yet. Right. It would have just been a matter of like, you know, they'd be in deep political shit for a while, but they wouldn't float Jake. That's a headcanon. That's my gut. I don't know if that's true. I think that, but I also wonder, in 213, when she's trapped underground with Kane, and they have one of my favorite scenes of the entire run of the show, where they're talking about moral responsibility, and they're cataloging their own sin. And Kane talks about floating people for stealing medicine, and she says, like, floating the man you love to save your people. And the way that she says that makes me wonder... If she hoped a loophole would be found, but knew there was a possibility that it wouldn't, and that she had to make this choice anyway. Oh, and I think that's absolutely true. She had to have made the decision convincing herself 
that most likely a loophole would be found, but knowing deep down that probably it wouldn't. Because that's the first time, the first and only time that she really has that emotionally complex and sophisticated of a conversation about her own role in that. Like, it's, it's different when it's sort of Clark throwing it back in her face. I also get the feeling from that conversation and the way that it starts versus where it has gotten to by the time she says that, I get the feeling that that is not only the first time that she's ever said that out loud, but that it's also the first time that she's ever allowed herself to think that or to yeah. fully articulate to herself. It's a realization. Yeah. Or not even like, not like a full realization, like she didn't know, right, right, but more like one of those things that you won't let yourself know that you won't yeah. let yourself form yeah, yeah, yeah. into an articulable thought because the truth of it is so horrible. And this is the moment when she's finally forced to think the thought in her brain. I would suspect that this is a matter of, deep 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 denial for abby and clark kind of does the same thing right there's another griffin woman trait where they're able to convince themselves so thoroughly of their own reasons right right yeah i mean like they're really really good at lying to themselves yes yes (laughs) um (laughs) which is part of what gives them their charisma as leaders is that it, it gives them that certainty That they're able to say, like, this is the thing we should do, but that requires a kind of mental trick of not looking at the other thing that you might maybe should do, but you've decided to do this thing. I get the feeling that's probably that Abby convinced herself that by telling Jaha, she was not absolutely condemning Jake to death. Yeah. Even though she, on some level, had to know that she was. The heartbreaking thing is then that Doing what she thought she had to do, doing what she thought was going to be the right thing for everyone on the Ark, but also for protecting her family, ended with not only Jake being floated, but her losing her daughter. She was trying to to save her family and she lost her family. And I think that's part of why there's so much that I find so impossibly difficult to watch in the progression of Clark and Abby's relationship through the end of season one and the beginning of season two, where we see how hard Clark is holding on to not being able to forgive Abby for what she did. You know, she made the choice that she made in the hopes that it would keep her family together. And it didn't just lead to Jake being executed and Clark being arrested, but it puts this rift between her and Clark that, I mean, I think in some ways, like the cruelest thing in the way their story unfolds is that they're not given any kind of a chance to grieve losing Jake together. They're like immediately separated. And then it's while they're separated that Clark finds out that it wasn't Wells, it was her mom. And it's so long before her love for her mom supersedes that anger that she's holding on to so it's really really hard to watch for a huge stretches at a time because you do feel so deeply for abby and what she tried to do but you also completely understand why it's something that for clark just feels completely unforgivable yeah absolutely so which is probably a good transition speaking of unforgivable to wells Wells! Oh, yes, we have to talk a lot about Wells because this is the last time. Yeah. Because our baby. Aaron, this episode is so hard to watch because of all of the Wells stuff. But both of them, really, are just... I know. No, I know. I know. So let's start with 102 and then we can go into 103. One thing I noticed this time, rewatching 102, that I thought was really 
really like subtle and interesting and important that I had not noticed before is the way that they build up this recurring theme in 102 of wells and invisibility, not only in Bellamy repeating that over and over again. So Bellamy tells Wells that he's invisible to Clark and he kind of, kind of riffs on that. But what I noticed this time is the way that the show itself in terms of the narrative and also the way it's shot works to make Wells invisible or to make the work that Wells does and the things that he contributes to the community of the kid, of the delinquents invisible, not only to the kids because they are invisible to the kids, but even to the audience. And that one I thought was really interesting. And and there's a bunch of ways that this happens. Like the biggest one I think that I forget that I, or I didn't even notice, I think for the first couple of times I watched it, or I would hear it and then I would instantly forget, is that the wall is Wells' idea. This wall that becomes Bellamy's whole thing, you know, this wall that becomes what, you know, so many of the kids are working on for a good chunk of the first half half of season one. It's Wells' throwaway idea. He's trying to convince Clark to take with her one of those times, and he says to Finn, build a wall around the camp. And the next time we come back, you see that happening. No one ever subsequently acknowledges ever again that that was Wells's idea. It just happens. It becomes Bellamy's thing, but it was actually Wells's idea. Same thing when he makes that pack and Clark says, hey, nice pack. And he says, oh yeah, I made it and I did this and this and this. You see them with those packs all the time. Oh yeah. Wells's work. Wells came up with that. Never, ever gets acknowledgement ever oh, again. God, right. Because Clark never mentions it again. He tells Clark that he did it, and then it's just gone. You know, he tells Finn to build the wall, you know, but that, that just kind of gets passed on. When Jasper is dying, and Clark figures out there's this poultice, Wells is the one who recognizes the plant. And that one is so blatant, because the whole conversation where she's sitting there picking through it, trying to figure out what it is, and Wells is talking to Clark and telling her what they need to do. And Clark is react is responding to Wells at Finn. Like she's talking to Finn. I hate like that. Finn is the one who's saying the words that Wells is saying. On the overt plot level, this is forwarding the Wells-Clark relationship where she's ignoring him, right? Like this is about Wells and Clark and Clark being childish about being mad at her best friend. But it perpetuates something that keeps happening. Clark talking to Finn as though he's saying the words that Wells is saying is something that the show itself is doing to Wells over and over and over again. Burying the first two bodies, saying we need to gather rainwater to drink. Wells is doing all this work and this labor to set things up so that it's survivable for the delinquents. Creating an infrastructure that's going to actually keep them alive. Like that fucking wall keeps them alive at the end of the season. That's Wells' wall. And then the food is one that I noticed too. Yeah. Like that he's the one that shoots the panther or whatever creature. And then Bellamy brings it back and he's like, I got dinner. And everyone's like, Bellamy's a hero. And I was like, Bellamy did shit. Bellamy didn't even have the gun. Exactly. And you never see, once they won't come back to the camp, Wells vanishes again. The audience doesn't see him. So what Bellamy comes in and he takes credit for Wells's kill. Wells, who fucking saved his life. Right. You know, like he brought that. He's like, and like, I went hunting and I, I conquered the great wild cat. It's like, no, Bellamy, you were about to be killed by that cat. Wells saved your ass. And no one will ever know that Wells is the one that killed that panther. 
And then Finn's big kind of like, I'm the good hero man move at the end of 102 is when Bellamy is trading food for wristbands and Finn walks up and, you know, grabs one and refuses to take it. And then Clark kind of like smirks at Bellamy, like, haha, we're not falling for you. But again, it's one of those things where like Finn gets the credit for being the one who kind of stands up for Bellamy. Finn gets the credit for being on Clark's side. But it's all Wells is doing. And Wells is the one who insists that he wants to go with them to save Jasper. But Clark keeps saying like she wants Finn to go and Finn doesn't want to go. So this is just something, it's like, it's a pattern I hadn't really noticed before how much of a pattern it is. And it's a pattern that's perpetuated not only by Clark, who's the only character who deliberately tries to ignore Wells, but even by the show, it's like, I think it's very, very deliberate the way that they direct it and write it. This is what's happening to Wells. And it's really sad. It it sort of reflects something about Wells where he refuses to take credit for himself or even the opposite. I mean, he takes credit for something that Clark's mom does, but he is willing to forego credit if it's going to make things better for some other group. So he doesn't really care about having credit about the Panther because it means that everybody gets to eat. Basically, like, Wells is like the Hufflepuffliest of (laughs) Hufflepuffs ever to Hufflepuff in history of time. I don't actually know quite exactly what to make of that pattern. I only just noticed that it was happening. Yeah. I was thinking about it when we were watching 103 today, because when you texted me about it last night, like, keep an eye out for this. And I was like, oh, my God, then I was seeing it everywhere. But because then after you mentioned that I was looking for it, I was really intrigued by how that manifests in the 103 flashback where he's present in the background watching for the whole airlock scene and is unacknowledged by everybody. Yes. So at the beginning of the scene, it's Abby and Jake and Jaha, right? And Abby and Jake are talking, you know, they're saying goodbye and Jake is about to say, please give my watch to Clark. And then Clark comes bursting in. I think the implication, right, is that Clark is not supposed to be there. Right. She wasn't officially allowed to be there and she somehow got in. And the thing that I think I hadn't noticed this time, had you noticed it before, is that Wells comes running in after Clark, which kind of implies that Wells got her in there. Well, and he's sort of tussling with the guards. Yeah, yeah. That frees her up to go run to her dad. And I think at that point, once she's in, they're not going to drag her away. But whether it's because he snuck her in there or whether it's just that he came with her and distracts the guards so she can get through, Wells gets her into that airlock. Yes, Wells gets her in there. And then this thing that I noticed this time, so he stays the whole time and we see some really interesting kind of cuts back and forth between him and Jaha. And then as soon as Jake is dead... Then we see Wells very blurry in the background walk away. And it's like Mm -hmm. he wants to make sure that Clark gets this moment. And then he sort of recuses himself. He's there when she needs him to be there to get her in the room. And then he goes away when she needs him to not be there. And no one says anything to him. He doesn't have any dialogue. He doesn't interact with anyone directly after he breaks away from those guards. And yet we see him in the background of Clark shots and in the background of Jaha shots. There's a part of me that wants to think that because of Wells' emotional intelligence that's above and beyond almost everybody else in this cast, 
part of me wonders, is he also in his own way there for Jake? Is part of it him saying, I am here with Clark, I'm going to be here with Clark, wanting to make sure that Jake knows that someone is looking out for his wife and daughter? Because Jaha can't make eye contact with anybody. He says, Jake, it's time. That's his only real moment. But he's not interacting. He's not engaging with them. Abby isn't talking to him. Again, he's abdicating as much responsibility for this as he can. And this is, again, this is just straight up headcanon. But it feels like the kind of thing that Wells would think about. I'm going to show up and stand here so that Jake knows that there's somebody here who's going to make sure that Clark and Abby are okay. There's also a sense in which Wells is bearing witness. Yes. Not just bearing witness to Jake's execution, but the fact that he's there also sort of declares to everyone in that room that he knows. Right, right. What's going on. Which is interesting because he does not get arrested like Clark. One of the only sort of close-up shots of Wells's face in that scene, he's giving a real strong side eye to Jaha. Yeah. And I think that there's an element of, I'm here and I'm going to watch this happen. He doesn't just drop off Clark and then leave. He stays to watch. And I think it's because he wants his dad to know that he knows. He wants, like, every time his dad looks at him, he wants Jaha to know that Wells knows what he did. Right, exactly. He's sort of like, I am aware of why this is happening. And I'm aware of everyone's role in it. And I see this and I see you. He's sort of becoming this memory of this event, which is like a fucking badass move. Mm -hmm. You know, Wells, I mean, we talked about a little bit in the last podcast that Wells is kind of has this reputation among fans as being this like little sweet cinnamon roll version of a Hufflepuff. But I mean... I am a Hufflepuff, so, so Hufflepuff <laughs> Prime. But Hufflepuffs are badgers, right? So it's not just like cuddly. It's also like fierce fuck you up. Oh, yeah. This is the fierce side of Wells, I think. I mean, you think about the fact that Clark was thrown in jail just for knowing. Wells has made himself a threat by watching that go down. And there's that one moment, there's an earlier flashback when Clark and he are playing chess and she tells him what's going on. He basically says, counsel meaning my father, which I thought was really telling too, in terms of what we talked about last time about the possibility that Wells, based on this experience, had a better sense than many of how the arc system worked and the implications of the political system that was in place and the kind of power that his father had and the way his father used it. And I think maybe this suggests that he was aware of that even before the Jake thing went down because he's he goes right to it. So the thing I thought was really interesting that I that I had never really put together until this rewatch is the work that these two episodes, but particularly the flashbacks, do to illustrate to us that Clark has always been a good girl, a little bit of a tight ass. Jake says, you picked a fine time to start behaving like a teenager. Yeah. It's sort of goes to imply <laughs> this is the first bad or reckless thing Clark's ever done in her life. But then with Wells, Abby says to Jaha in the council meeting, our kids have both done things that we would never have predicted. And then Clark's reasoning for why she believes it was Wells that ratted her out was basically to suck up to his dad and get his dad to approve of him. And so those two things kind of side by side, I think, reverse a little bit fandom perception that Clark's always been a badass and Wells is like a fluffy cinnamon roll. I think that we're, or good at tissues, 
I think we're meant to believe that on the arc, it was the exact opposite. Clark was the goody two-shoes good kid who never rebelled or never did anything bad and that it's wildly out of character for her to dive in and break the law and it's only because it's her father whereas wells doesn't seem to have leading up to this any kind of real closeness with his dad really like the soccer scene is the most we sort of see them acting like a family with each other but you know that's one moment that's not a full relationship and and so the fact that clark immediately goes to Oh, you know what? Couldn't wait to go running to dad to like basically score some points implies that he needed to score points. I just, yeah, I wonder a lot about the way that their relationship was transformed by this thing that happened. And it makes, I think, more and more sense if you look at it in that context, why the choice for him to go to Earth with Clark rather than stay on the Ark with his dad, I think felt very straightforward to him, I would imagine. I don't know that I believe he would have been deeply conflicted. Yeah, no, I mean, like we said, I mean, if the, if the positions were reversed, I don't know that Clark would have done something to get on the dropship to go with Wells. No, I don't think so either. If her parents were alive, she would have stuck with them. And so the fact that Wells, apparently with with very little hesitation and no regret, did whatever he did to get on that dropship. Do we ever find out what it was? I don't think so. Now I'm trying to remember where it was. I think maybe in the books, he set fire to the, the, whatchamacallit tree. Oh, the Eden tree? The Eden tree. Yeah. I think, so I think I could be mixing that up with something else, but I think in the books, that's what he did. But I don't think they ever say on the show. It doesn't come up in the Pike and Jaha season three flashback, does it? When Pike says like, I was sorry to hear about your son. Oh, I don't think so. I okay. think I would have remembered that. Yeah. I think we would have remembered if we had gotten like actual info about Wells. Yeah. So I agree. I think what we learn is that there's certainly some unease or some there's there's a lack of really solid trust between Wells and his father. And it's also telling that, you know, we know that Wells kept Clark's secret. He wouldn't have told his father. Clearly, he didn't have the kind of relationship where Thelonious was somebody that he was going to talk things through with. He clearly didn't consult or really, it didn't seem like he he talked to his father about the issue very much in the intervening time period, you know, between the time that Jake was floated and when the dropship went down. And Wells isn't reckless. Wells is not the kind of person who's just like, ah, fuck it. I'm just going to like smash this thing and get on that dropship. He clearly is just like, I decided to do this. And then I carried out my plan. And here I am. Wells is a stone cold badass. Well, and we get that. We get so much of that in these two episodes. I had forgotten when Murphy and Wells are fighting, Wells knocks him out. Yeah, Wells is winning that fight. Yeah, Wells is winning the fight. And it's <laughs> yeah. only once it, it becomes a knife fight. And then Clark comes in and then, of course, Wells and gets, gets distracted. Yeah, exactly. Another way that Wells is invisible and that blame or credit is shifted around Wells, away from, you know, he doesn't get credit where he should and he gets blamed where he shouldn't. This is the tragedy of Wells. I don't really know, again, like, I don't really know why they chose to do that, but it is a consistent theme. I don't know if this is 
why, but it's something that really struck me. Like, I remember thinking very clearly the first time that I watched it, and then even more so, I think, rewatching it, you know, knowing how well the story ends, is it, it's a really ballsy choice this early in the run of a show, which leans so hard on the charisma of its central protagonist to give her something that makes her so consistently unlikable in those moments. The scene with her and Finn and Wells in the car is almost unwatchably awkward. Like, it's so oh, yeah. heartbreakingly uncomfortable. And Drunk she's Clark so, is so mean cruel, to him. So cruel to him. It didn't occur to me as a viewer until it occurs to Finn and he expositions it to Wells and therefore the audience that it's possible that Wells all along was covering for somebody. So that, so I didn't have that in my head. I sort of assumed he probably did what she thinks that he did. But still, even even believing that, because all we see of him is him being on the side of good. He will fight back when somebody fights him, but he doesn't ever start shit. And we just, like you said, we see him digging graves and he's the person who shoots the animal and everything that he's doing is for the greater good. And so even if he did do the thing, you can't imagine that there was any malicious agency on his part everyone makes mistakes and so watching clark like a five-year-old hear what he's saying and then be like hmm finn do you hear something i hear a buzzing noise she's acting like a (laughs) child i mean she is 17 she's 17 yeah so what's interesting about it is we're three episodes in to the entire show And everything hangs on Clark, the protagonist. Every other character is sort of set up in relation to Clark or in relation to other characters who are in Clark's orbit. She's the heart of the whole show. This is long before Bellamy has sort of risen up to be the co-lead with her. It's really, it's Clark's show. And so it's a really audacious move to plant so early on the idea that she holds on to grudges so aggressively that it blinds her to other possibilities and makes her cruel. That's a Clark character trait. That stubborn grudge-holdingness. If you hurt somebody that she cares about, she will fucking cut you. Like, that side of Clark, (laughs) they maintain that throughout the whole show, I think, in a lot of ways. But I just think it's a really ballsy choice to introduce it that early because it makes you, in those moments, really not like Clark. Yeah. It's very, very difficult to watch her treat Wells the way she treats him. And then rewatching it, knowing what happens to him and knowing how little time they have together, it is just excruciating. Yeah, and, and I think what redeems her of that is her devastation when she dies and her remorse for, you know, even at the end of 103, when she confronts him, she has finally sort of realized that it was her mother and not him and then confronts him about it. She's so sad and devastated and remorseful. She recognizes fully exactly what he did for her in letting her hate him. I think it is clear that she understands that that was a gift to her from him and how much love and loyalty it shows in him. At least they get that final little moment where she says, can you forgive me? And he says, it's already done. So Clark feels it. You know, I think we do see at the end of the episode, she appreciates him again. And she also understands, you know, I think she understands how cruel she was and she feels bad about it. And it's so, it's so satisfying. And that scene is so powerful and so 
I mean, God, if they hadn't gotten that moment of resolution before he was killed, that would just be, that would be so brutal. So brutal to her. I mean, it's already brutal enough. I mean, I think like that also gives us another sort of core Clark trait, which is that she holds grudges like fucking hardcore. But when she decides to forgive, she forgives very quickly. Yeah. And then and then it really is behind you. And it's funny because like so often her forgiveness isn't it isn't like a gradual thing. Like it's not like she works up for it. It's like grudge, grudge, grudge. And then she reaches the point or there's a turning point where she's like, okay, you're forgiven. It's done. And then it's truly done. And so like Wells is the first time we see that. I think we see that with Bellamy in 108 when they're under the tree and she says, if you need forgiveness, I'll give that to you. It's a different thing because like Bellamy, you know, she's not forgiving him for anything he did to her. But I think when she says that to him, obviously we can, I will discuss this yeah. when we get there. But I think when she says that, you know, for Clark, that means, okay, you're forgiven, done. You're my guy now. All the bad shit that he did up until that point is officially, as far as Clark is concerned, resolved, moving on. Which we see immediately in the next episode when Finn sort of confronts her, like, hey, you're working with that guy. And she's like, yeah, I trust him. She's like, get with the program. I forgave him last week. Come on, Finn. And I do feel like, we've talked about this before, I do wish it had been emotionally underpinned and paced a little better. But this is the thing that makes it plausible that that there is any part of her that will be able to forgive Lexa in season three is that we do see like yes. that she holds on to these things. And then that when she's crossed a line past which it's like, I've decided that I forgive you, then it never comes up again. Yes. And we yes. see that enough that it's a consistently developed trait in her that it makes it plausible why she would make those choices, even with very dramatically awful things that multiple characters do. It's just that, I think it's emotionally planted, I think, in a way that feels more resonant in some situations than others. But they keep going back to that well in a way that it feels like we're meant to believe that this is a really core trait in how she relates to people. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's the same thing with Abby. Yeah. Uh-huh. And again, she's really cruel to Abby at various points in season one. But in season two, when they reach the line of forgiveness, then that's it. Then it's forgiven. And it's over. And, and Clark will never throw Jake back in Abby's face. Once it's done, it's done. It, which is an interesting thing, you know. It's rare that you have a character whose main traits is grudge holding, who actually does forgive, right? Like, if you, you're like, what's, what do we know about this character? Well, they hold grudges. Then they, you know, a lot of the time, somebody writing that character might be like, well, then grudge forever, you know, and that's not Clark. It's believable. You know, uh -huh. I think like that's definitely true for a lot of people. Clark is kind of like intuitively a character who understands that forgiveness is about a choice. She decides to give you forgiveness and that's it. And it's not a question of like, well, let me tally up. Did you do all the things you had to do to like right, earn right, forgiveness? Right. Check, check, check. Like that's not really how Clark works. The reason that it's that it's more complicated than just this is a person who holds grudges forever is that they're, they're never petty grudges. They're always like they're for really high stakes things. But I think that thing that gets her past that grudge you know i'm mean, like well, is this one is because she realized she was wrong but like in a you know in a more kind of holistic sense it's also the, the cost of not having that person in her life in the way she wants them to be in her life becomes more important than getting some kind of petty satisfaction out of resenting somebody which i think is what distinguishes it from being a grudge grudge 
like where some people just like to hold on to that and like like to be angry at you or like to find reasons to be mad at people. Or where some people, a grudge is about hanging on to their feeling of pain and victimhood. Like Octavia does that, I think. Yes, exactly. Yes. Where they're sort of like, you hurt me and I am curled in a little ball cuddling with my pain. And I won't let go of that. Like, that's that's another kind of grudge holding. And yeah, I think that's more like the grudge that Octavia holds. And for Clark, it's more like, you did something wrong. You caused this this wrong. It's not that the hurt she feels isn't a part of it. She's less sort of like just attached to hanging on to her identity as someone who's been hurt. And I also think it has something to do, I, I think you're totally right about the, you know, the line for her is when she decides that having the person is more important than what they did wrong, which I think is definitely true with Abby and Lexa and even Bellamy to some extent. But I think also with Wells and with Bellamy, certainly, but in all those cases, I think it also has to do with, you know, Clark is really willing to forgive based on intention. If your heart was in the right place and she can understand your point of view and where your heart was in that moment and why you thought it was in the right place, then she's always willing to forgive. You know, so in this case, she was wrong about Wells, but it's not just that she was wrong. It's also that she, I think that she understands why he did it, you know, and that it came from a place of like love and caring. Yeah, is that it came from this place of that he loved her so much that he wanted to make sure that having lost her father, that she didn't lose her mom too. Exactly. She says, you were trying to protect me. So I think... If she can get herself to the place where she understands why the person did what they did that hurt her and understand and, and like really not just like intellectually understand, but sort of feel uh, emotionally understand what motivated them to do that and understand that what motivated them to do that was not, you know, malevolent or intended to hurt her. I think she's sort of like that maybe is another one of those moments where like, she crosses that line to where she's like, okay, I forgive you. Yeah. You did wrong, but but you, you, the person, are forgiven for having done the thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's a, I think it's a separation of the person from the act that they committed. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. She's able to sort of separate. She's able to say, like, you are a person who did a bad thing. And the bad thing you did does not define you as a person. Yeah. Like, she's able to, to make that distinction. And I think... And and maybe one of the big differences with with Octavia is that Octavia cannot make that distinction. Yeah. For Octavia, you are what you do in a way that is never, ever true for Clark. Because Octavia says to Bellamy, like, every time I look at you, I'm reminded of what you did. Like, she can't, she can't physically look at Bellamy without thinking about Lincoln being executed, you know? And, and that's yeah. a very different kind of, of holding on to that pain and anger and you know and bitterness that is really really different from how Clark is you know and I think I think sort of you know going back to this sort of the, what I imagine will be sort of an ongoing season one you know theme of the the Abby Bellamy and Clark Kane parallels I think Kane and Clark one of the traits that they share in common is that they are much more willing to admit when they were wrong and have fucked up Kane after the pulling or Kane coming to Abby after shock lashing her and handing over the chancellor pin and Clark coming to Wells and, you know, and saying like, I was wrong and you were right. And I was awful to you. 
there's a there's a humility in the way that they can atone for those things that I think that is different for people like Abby and Bellamy, whose stubbornness is sort of more personal. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, so yeah, so I think that's why Clark comes around to Wells eventually. And, you know, like the tragedy is, of course, that it's, it's at the last possible second. And, you know, they never got to get to enjoy having reestablished their uh, relationship. So let's talk about Bellamy. <laughs> since we we talked about Clark. So to go back to Wells, because I think in 102 and 103, on the ground, Wells is really, Wells is like so important, you know, and this is one of those things where it's so funny that that he's kind of devi- defined by his invisibility in so many ways and, and, and so much of his, his legacy is kind of forgotten um, because it's also easy to not notice the way that he is kind of like, the glue that holds together all of the threads of the story with the delinquents in 102 and 103. So like, obviously with Clark, you know, so much of Clark's kind of micro arc between from over those two episodes is wrapped up in her relationship with Wells. Like all of 103 is about Clark and Wells and to the point where we were, you know, when we were watching, we were talking about how Finn, you know, like Finn in 103 is, basically just an exposition machine. Like he just like wanders from character to character, asking them leading questions about (laughs) other characters and how they feel about them in order to like advance the Clark Wells story beats. There's basically nothing you can say about Finn as Finn, Finn qua Finn (laughs) in 103, because he just exists as like the triangulation point through which uh, Wells and Clark's relationship is going to be resolved. And as the uncomfortable third wheel in that car scene. Right, exactly. But like he's, as an uncomfortable third wheel, he's there as kind of like an audience insert to guide our reactions right, right. to to the exchange between Clark and Wells. So, <laughs> so maybe one reason why solving the problem of Finn Collins, which I'm not going to sing this time because my throat hurts. God damn it. I quit. <laughs> Uh, I well, I sang it so well last time. I don't think I can do it as well this time. And I didn't. I didn't write the whole song, but I will before we finish. Before he dies, let's say, before he dies, or maybe you know what? Let me say this: when we do the recap of two hundred eight, <laughs> Spacewalker, I will sing. I will have written and I will sing the full "How Do You Solve a Problem Like Finn Collins" song. Oh my god, I'm so excited! All right, so you guys, everybody, has look something to look forward to. So, you know, so so the thing about, the reason that Finn is just kind of hard to figure out who the hell he's supposed to be in 103, I think it's just because he's really just kind of like there to react to things and be an exposition machine. So, so Wells in 103 is all about Clark, but Wells in 102 is really all about Bellamy. All, so much of Bellamy's character, the way that he's set up in 102, is once again... It comes out through his interactions with Wells. And the interesting thing is, one other thing I noticed watching 102 this time is that in the delinquent camp, so we start out in 102 with uh, Clark and Finn and Jasper and Monty and Octavia out in the woods, you know, like they're running away from, or I guess, I mean, Jasper's not there. He's, he has a spear in his chest somewhere, but the others are sort of running away or running back to camp. And then we cut back to the delinquent, to the dropship. And what we cut to is we see Wells, Finishing digging the graves. So again, once again, there's Wells doing work right. that is totally unacknowledged and forgotten. 
you know, Wells starts the graveyard that Clark and Bellamy are standing looking at various points in season one. No one ever mentions that Wells is the first one to establish that graveyard, that nobody else in that camp thought about the fact that they had dead bodies that they needed to do, to do something with. And, you know, he's the one who, who thinks about repurposing their clothes and their shoes. Yeah. So we start with him digging graves and then the camera follows him as he walks back towards the camp and it's sort of like it follows him as he's walking through it. And as it follows him, we see, you know, like kids running around in the bushes and making out and playing drums. And so, you know, through this kind of like him walking back into camp, it establishes that the delinquents camp is in chaos, right? Yeah, it's very Lord of the Flies. Exactly. And, and it, but it, but what it, that's doing is setting up this deliberate contrast between Wells and all the other kids. So there's Wells who's doing work, who's burying bodies, literally dealing with the consequences of having hit the ground. Right. And then you have all these other kids who are, who are just like running around willy nilly going crazy. And he walks up to the drop ship. And, you know, out comes Bellamy, gloriously shirtless. And, um, and, <laughs> and, you know, gets into a fight with Bellamy right off the bat. And so the, the thing that I hadn't really thought about before, and I think that maybe gets overlooked, but I think is really key to what's going on with Bellamy, the way that they're framing Bellamy in 102, is that um, Wells is our point of view character for the delinquent camp. We're with him, you know, we're seeing, we're supposed to see that camp through his eyes. And we're supposed to sort of like be with Wells and see the chaos of the kids running around as chaos, right? Um, you know, I think we're, we're sort of being prompted. We're like, we're supposed to be on Wells' side. So when we get to the dropship and Bellamy comes out and, you know, Wells is, is like, it, Wells confronts him about what's going on. And Bellamy says, you know, what's wrong with a little chaos? Bellamy is being set up as the antagonist. So in 102, like, 102 was, like, really peak antagonist for Bellamy yes, and for Kane. Very much so. Which I think is really interesting in terms of where Bellamy as a character goes in 103. The way that he is being so deliberately and carefully framed as being an antagonist, as in, which is, you know, so, so I'm not talking about a villain. Not, I'm not saying villain. I don't think he's a villain. He's an antagonist because Wells is the protagonist. Wells is the main character. That's what we're being told by that direction. And Bellamy is opposed to him, which makes him the antagonist. So like, this is the kind of relationship that's being set up. So, and, and that kind of continues with, you know, throughout. So we see Bellamy, he kind of shifts into villain a little bit later on when, you know, he's going out into the woods with Wells and Clark and he says, I'm going to get that wristband if I have to cut off her hand to do it and so on and so forth but but he's really very much an antagonist role which I think you know tells us a few things which is that number one you know we're supposed to disapprove of what he's doing you know so what's wrong with little chaos stuff well everything's wrong with chaos <laughs> um you know if like you don't stop with the chaos then you're all gonna die which is the thing that Wells knows um <laughs> so like you know I love Bellamy everybody knows I love Bellamy but this is this is the the nadir of you yeah. know season one <laughs> Bellamy. This is Bellamy at his absolute worst uh, I mean you know Actually, it's funny because, like, given the the shit that he's gonna he has yet to do in season one, I still I think I still kind of stand by that. What's implied is that I think the reason that Bellamy is doing what he's doing, the reason that he's deliberately, I think, trying to 
uh, he not only proves this, but he's, he's kind of like trying to create an atmosphere of chaos is because he understands sort of intuitively that this is how he can control these kids. He, but because because the thing about Bellamy, like we were talking about last week, you know, uh, or last episode podcast, um, Clark has the Leslie Note problem where she's she can identify what the problem is and how to solve it, but she's really not very good at getting people on her side because she's not good at identifying what they need to hear. And Bellamy is really good at figuring out what people need or want to hear and using that to get them to listen to him and follow him. So he identifies kind of instinctively right away that what the kids want to hear is like, you know, like, we're not criminals, you know, like down here, we're in charge. You should get to do whatever you want to do. The ground should worry about us. Exactly. You know, like you're no longer beholden to their rules. And if they can't come down here, they're going to make you follow their rules again. Um, this is what they want to hear. And he sort of appeals to that because by appealing to that, he prevents Wells or Clark, the people who, who want order. And I mean, they want, you know, like what they want is like order in order for everyone to survive. But all Bellamy is thinking about the fact is that what they want is to be to make it possible for the people from the Ark to come down. And that's what he's trying to do. And it's a very, very, very short-term perspective. All he's thinking about is keeping it so that the people on the Ark can't come down. And what that means is keeping Clark and Wells from people, keeping the kids from listening to Clark and Wells. So he's, he will do or say whatever he needs to do in order to keep the kids on his side, which, you know, like there's no way to slice that other than that. It's just really shitty. Like that's bad. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's really, really, really bad. And I think one thing that, that has occurred to me on this rewatch that's really interesting, and we were talking about, we were talking about, um, Abby and Raven at the beginning of this podcast and talking about all the ways, the little subtle ways that 102 sets up not only the plot of the culling, but also the kind of emotional impact of the culling in 104. I think interestingly, or I guess it's in 105, but going into 104, I think interestingly, 102 also sets up really, really carefully and very in a, in a kind of way that's very subtle exactly what's going to go wrong for Bellamy in 104. Because what Bellamy has, I, you know, the, the Bellamy of the, of the first days on the ground and the way that he becomes their sort of leader, it's sort of funny because I think he thinks he has control over the kids. And I think. Clark think I think everybody else thinks he has control over the kids. Like Clark thinks that he has control, at least for a while. But the truth is that Bellamy, all Bellamy really has is a kind of aura of authority. That is, they look to him as an authority, but the basis for that is the fact that he appeases them. Like he has authority because he echoes back to them what they want to hear. Which is why in 104, he's going to kick that stool out from underneath Murphy, even though he knows Murphy is not guilty because he has set himself up. He knows that is the the only source of his authority in that moment is the fact that he gives the people what they want. So I think it's really interesting to see in 102 and even in 103, the way that he manipulates the situation to make sure that he's always getting credit for keeping them kind of happy and making them believe that he's looking out for them. But really what he's doing is sort of like appealing to their their sort of baser instincts, their desires, their egos. 
And then the way that that flips around on him in 104. Right. And he has to recognize exactly what has gone wrong with that in 104. And that forces him to ally with Clark and forces them to start working together. So like that, the groundwork for that is even is being set here. Yeah. I was really struck by, you know, the, the scene in 102 where we sort of see for the first time really that we, that we see Clark and Bellamy's competing hero speeches you know like clark is like yeah you know, you're not just killing them you're killing us the ark is dying we need them to come down here we need farmers and engineers and she's and she reminds them like you know we're the we need the people who can fight the grounders you know they have weapons yeah, like we, we can't like we can't fight them off ourselves like and everything that she's saying is is true and backed up by facts and evidence and logical and sound and bellamy is like, you're survivors, you're not criminals, you're, you know, you're fighters, and like, the grounders should be scared of us. And, and it's, it's based on nothing. It's, it's way better politics. Like, he's already a better politician. But I, but I do, but I do think that it's really interesting to see in, in a way that feeds so beautifully into that really transformative moment in 103 with Adam. Where Bellamy realizes yeah. that Clark is the one whose leadership has substance because Clark is the one yes. who can do things. And this is the thing, it's all the way through the show. And it, every time somebody is resistant to Clark taking charge or fights back against Clark's authority, like I think particularly with Jasper in Nevermore, where he sees her take the chip out of Raven's neck and he realizes Clark's not just, she's not bossy. But she can do things nobody else can do. And that's why she emerges as the leader. And that when he realized, like, I could never do what you do. And I think that that, I think that threat of Clark, that people assume that she's being princessy or they assume that she's being bossy or that she assumes that she wants to be in charge for some reason of her own. And, and it comes from this deep place of her having a degree of courage and foresight and composure and grace under pressure and a really specific set of skills and abilities that none of the other kids could possibly imagine having. And so she can do things nobody else can do. And so seeing, so I think the, the way these two episodes present a Bellamy who's all flash and no substance, where he he gets a lot of applause for bringing back dinner, which he didn't do. And then, and then Clark very quietly without anyone except Bellamy. And then also Charlotte in the background there to witness it. Mercy kills a man dying in incredible pain where like Bellamy hasn't killed anybody. He only thinks he's killed Jaha. You know, he doesn't know that he hasn't. And he's like ripped up inside about that. You know, yeah. like one thing that, that Bellamy in the first half of season one is running from and trying not to face, I think, with this persona, you know, this where he's constantly running is, is the guilt and the pain that comes from the fact that he thinks that he's a murderer and trying not to face that. He, he's trying not to face that right up until day trip. So that beautiful moment, and it's like set up so nicely at the beginning where he says to Clark when they're in the dropship, you don't have the guts to make the tough decisions. And I do. And then you get to the end and, you know, he's kneeling on the ground and Adam is begging him to, uh, to kill him. And he can't do it. His face, like Bob Worley's face, when he, when Bellamy is watching Clark kill him is 
masterful. I mean, like it's to, you know, you see the sort of like dawning realization that he has totally misjudged her and this kind of like awe and fascination. This is, he, he, he's like looking at her again and I think realizing something about her and realizing something about himself. And like, I think, you know, looking back, even though I still didn't like Bellamy, you know, I didn't like Bellamy until, you know, the first time I watched well into season one. Like, I think I, I think I reluctantly started to like him during my sister or during his sister's keeper. And then sometime around day trip, it kind of came around. But that look was the moment when I think I sort of like, at least subconsciously got really invested in Bellamy and Clark's relationship. Yeah. You know, because like, that's the moment where you see him sort of look at her and realize like, you are something like he doesn't even know what she is, but she's something like amazing. And that she can do something that he couldn't bring himself to do. And, and another thing I think too, like I think a, a little piece of it there, and this is a little bit more headcanony, but I think also another thing about what's happening there, like, so Clark is mercy killing Adam, right? But she's also taking the burden of killing him away from Bellamy. Bellamy is sort of like on the ground and he's stealing himself to kill him. And it's, and it's, it's a, not a, you know, it's like a terribly, terrible thing to do to take a human life. Even if it's euthanasia, you know, even if they're asking you to. Clearly, you know, like he just, he cannot bring himself to do it. And Clark just does it, you know, like Clark does it so serenely and she sings to him and she's so kind. But I think, I think on some level it also means something to Bellamy that this is a person who, you know, in a moment when, and, and you know, it's Bellamy too, who's like, where everything has always been on his shoulders. Has anyone ever done that for him before ever in his whole life? Never, never in his whole life. And you know what? I think, I think Bellamy deep down didn't believe that anyone would or could. It's not a part of his, who he is from, you know, when he was six years old and his mother put his sister in his arms and says, you said your sister, your responsibility yeah. and passed out, you know, from that moment forward, I don't think it ever occurred to him that there was a person in existence who would ever take responsibility or the the burden of something away from him because his own mother put that burden on him. So this is probably, this is almost assuredly the, the very first time in his entire life that anyone has seen him stealing himself to do something horrible and done it instead. Yeah. It takes a little time, but I think that's the kind of, that's the root moment for Bellamy and Clark and their and their dynamic. Because I think that it, I think that they continue in many ways after this, you know, back and forth to be antagonists to each other. But this is a moment where you realize he can't hate her anymore or want her dead or see her as an enemy. So another moment that happens in 102 that I think really contributes to shifting Bellamy away from being just sort of like a simple, like, oh, he's the villain on the ground, um, is that there is this moment in, you know, in 102 when they're going to, to, find Jasper and Clark falls into the pit full of spikes and he grabs her and he sort of instinctively reflexively grabs for her hand like he's not thinking about it and then there's just a fraction of a second where you can see on his face and you can I think sort of see on her face too that both of them are wondering if he's gonna let her 
drop. Like, and it coming on the heels of him and Murphy saying, like, I'm going to get that wristband and her saying the only way you're going to get it is if I'm dead. We're given the seeds to sort of think he could do this. And we see him sort of thinking about it and the moments taken away from him when everyone else sort of charges over. But I think that gets a really interesting little moment where... I I think that we're meant to believe that you know we see him thinking about it and that he's just he's decided or is going to decide not to which is interesting because I think you know the the simple straightforward thing for him to do to get his way would be just to let her die. Yeah. Which almost foreshadows that moment with with Adam where he's like sort of got this bluster about like I'm going to get that, you know, wristband no matter what I have to do, but when pushed in the moment when it comes to the, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the moment in which he has to do the thing that he says that he can do, he, he can't, he can't bring himself to kill Clark or Adam. Which is, an, it's an interesting sort of parallel to what's going on in the art too, where like you have both like, yeah. for both Bellamy and, and for Kane, it would be a lot easier for them to do the things that they want to do if the Griffin women weren't in their way. And I think Kane's willing to go through with it. But again, like at the sort of the 11th hour, it's prevented. But it, but it does sort of set up this interesting thing of, again, sort of feeding into the idea that Bellamy is all bravado. Like that Bellamy, the way Bellamy talks about himself and the way he presents himself as this kind of like indestructible badass is really you know comes down to he's the loudest most authoritative voice and he's the one that has a gun in his pocket and he's the most persuasive but it isn't backed up by an ability to effortlessly go through with making those hard choices the way we see with Clark and Adam. So it's just, I think that, I think that moment's really interesting because I think that the expected thing to do would be for, for it to look more in that moment like he's going to let her drop. And I think that the way that we see him genuinely conflicted about it, already it sort of gives a little bit more dimension to their relationship, you know, than we saw in their interactions in the pilot. I agree. And I also think that to go back to something we were talking about with the pilot, where when, when you know, Wells has that first confront, confrontation with Bellamy over the bracelets, and we we can see on Bellamy's face, you know, the way that, that Bob Morley plays it, you can see him recognizing that Wells is right, and also sort of calculating or recognizing the best way to win the argument, even though he knows Bells is, uh, Wells is right. I think we see that again at the beginning of 103 when, you know, when he's listening to Clark give her speech and he's very contemplative, you know, like you see, he's watching her, he's thinking, he's also looking around at the rest of the crowd and sort of reading them. And I think it's the same thing there. You get that sense that it's not that he doesn't think that she's right or doesn't recognize her, you know, the, the, the merit to her argument. It's that all he's worried about is making sure that she doesn't get control of the kids so that she can convince them to leave on their bracelets so that the people on the ark can come down. This sort of bravado, this, this, um, this kind of like swagger that he has, I think it's a persona, but I think I get the sense, you know, for the way that, that Bob Morley plays it, it's a very conscious persona. You know, like Bellamy is, is very, well aware not to say that that isn't a part of his personality because it you know because it is but i think that he's very much aware that this is how he needs to be because this is what appeals to those kids 
the reason that that they listen to him, they follow him, is because he's got he's got you know the loudest voice and he tells them what they want to hear. But also he sort of like presents himself as someone that they want to listen to and being able to say, I'm willing to do anything. Like I'm the biggest badass and whatever, you know, like I, I'm going to do what it takes. Like that's how he keeps control of Murphy. That's, I was wondering, I was thinking you know? about that when watching these two episodes, the way that Murphy just slides right into obeying Bellamy and doing what Bellamy says and sort of taking that second in command position so quickly is a really interesting dynamic. Because I think that Murphy, I think he's much more complex later on. And again, that's one of those things that's like a testament to Richard Harmon and also to the writers recognizing what Richard Harmon is capable of. But also, I think it's pretty clear that Murphy is, you know, he's cynical and he's really only interested in being able to to kind of like do what he wants to do which i think at this stage for murphy is get revenge on the world for what it's done to him but but like murphy has no interest ever in being a leader himself like murphy has zero interest in being the the go-to guy the leader of the delinquents on any level but what he sort of recognizes in bellamy is that bellamy's the guy who if he's in charge is going to make it possible for Murphy to do what he wants. Bellamy creates an environment in which Murphy can kind of like be Murphy. Up right up until 104, when the crowd, the mob attitude towards Murphy swings, and Bellamy has to swing with the crowd. And, you know, we'll talk about it next time, but, and, and Murphy becomes like, you know, a textbook scapegoat. But up until then, I think, there's this kind of like weirdly symbiotic situation where like Murphy kind of, I think Murphy's also the sort of character where he just kind of instinctively respects the person who, who is in charge. Like, I think this is kind of what happens with Jaha later. Like for Murphy, if you're somebody who's like, listen, this is the plan. He's going to be like, yeah, okay. I didn't have any other plans. It's his whole do whatever you have to do to survive thing. Yeah. And so I think for him, I mean, he definitely would rather have, the camp be controlled by Bellamy than be controlled by Clark because Clark's going to try to stop him from doing what he wants to do. And Bellamy is sort of like, Bellamy's, you know, like, I don't give a shit what you do as long as you don't disobey me. Well, which is the way that he's able to keep control. And their relationship is really interesting because again, like it's Murphy recognizing like this is the guy who has the power to create an atmosphere that is favorable to me. Um, but there's not any real like deep, it's not like he's like, I believe in the Bellamy Blake right, way, right, right. you yeah. know, like that's, it's not that. Um, and I think Bellamy recognizes that on some level, I think he recognizes two things. Number one, that Murphy is very useful in, as a henchman because Murphy will do whatever he tells him to do, no matter how bad it is. And number two, Murphy is also someone he needs to keep, he needs to be able to control because if Murphy is out of control, then he's going to cause trouble. So, you know, it's like one of those things where you're like, you got to keep Murphy close to you because he's, he could be a kind of like an agent of chaos. So, but Bellamy is making him his agent of chaos rather than working against him. The way that Bellamy is able to do that is, I think, you know, because Murphy responds to that bravado. Murphy responds to Bellamy saying like, I don't give a shit. I'll kill Clark. I'll kill Jasper. Yeah. <laughs> I'll kill anyone, you know, <laughs> when in fact he won't kill anyone. <laughs> So, yeah, so I think that's a really, that's an interesting um, relationship. But, you know, the one last thing I wanted to, to say about just, you know, sort of about Bellamy's character in these two episodes that I found really interesting on this watch 
is so in 102, Bellamy is really very clearly set up as the antagonist. You know, so he's the antagonist to Wells, the point of view character when we first go back to the camp. And then he's the antagonist to Clark when that he wants her bracelet. <laughs> and also like she, she, you know, wants the cl- things to be run in one way and he wants things to be run in another way. Um, I do think it's really interesting. You know, we talked about last time. In the pilot, Clark kind of backs down from Bellamy, but after that, she stops. Well, in that first confrontation in 103, she does back down at first. Yeah. he gives, She gives her speech. He gives his speech. He's clearly one out of the crowd. She kind of rolls her eyes and walks away. But then, but after that, it changes. After that, she never backs down from him. And I think the way that she, she talks to him when she comes to find him to get him to go with them to find Jasper, when she says, because, you know... Because you want them to follow you. Why should I follow you? And she says, because you want them to follow you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And right now they're thinking only one of us is afraid. I think it seems to me like what happens in the interim between those two scenes is that during that second, that argument at the beginning of 103, Clark figured Bellamy out. Yeah, I think so too. I think in that moment she kind of went away and go like, what the fuck is going on with this guy? Like, oh, you know, like she kind of gets his number. Yeah, yeah, I think so. After that first comment, confrontation in 103. And after that, once she's got his number, then she never backs down, you know, and he can never get past her. Like, that's the last time that Bellamy gets one up on Clark Griffin. And I think that one of the things you see in that is that, you know, there's a couple of different times where he can't quite bring himself to punish her or go head to head with her. So he punishes, he takes it out on somebody else instead. When she and Finn sort of saunter off with food, even though he said like no food with no wristbands and Finn's like I thought there were no rules you know and then he and you know and he's and he's pissed at Clark then some other kid comes up and tries to grab food and he like punches him and he's like I won't be disobeyed and it's like well it's really Clark that you're mad at but you can't fight back against her so you can take it on somebody else too you know and then Adam too Adam is being punished really instead of Octavia yeah you know Bellamy hangs in that from that tree actually it has nothing to do with the fact that he kissed his sister it has to do with the fact that Bellamy cannot be seen to be disobeyed. Yeah. And it's as much that he can't be seen to be disobeyed by someone like Murphy, by his lackeys, as it is by anyone else. The only way he maintains control is calling their bluff. And I think that really goes along with the themes in 102 of these continued misattributions of credit and blame. Yeah. It's always being shifted around. Bellamy gets credit for Wells's kill and the random kid gets punched because Clark and Finn took the food. And Adam gets punished because Octavia was rebelling against Bellamy's rules. None of the credit or the blame or the sort of like repercussions of things that people do land on the correct person. You could sort of argue that goes with the, when Bellamy says what's wrong with a little chaos, and then maybe the answer is what's wrong with a little chaos is that consequences don't land where they should. There's all this like sort of collateral damage. So I think 103 is really interesting when we kind of go into the camp. Wells is no longer a point of view character in 103. You know, we cut from the flashback on the arc to Clark with Jasper. And then from there, we cut to Bellamy doing target practice with Murphy at the tree. So now Clark is our point of view character and Bellamy is our point of view character. Yeah. Which is shifting now from Bellamy being the antagonist to Clark and Wells's protagonists to Clark and Bellamy being co-protagonists who are foils for each other rather than antagonists, which is like a humongous structural shift. 
And I think this is really the beginning. I'm sort of interested to know, actually, like at what point in the process they decided what direction exactly they were going to go with Bellamy's character and with the Clark and Bellamy relationship. Because it feels to me like picking up off the pilot in 102, they were sort of continuing with their original plan of making Bellamy the kind of like bad guy on the ground, you know, the antagonist to Clark. And then by the time they wrote 103, it seems like they kind of like, that feels like really the beginning of the arc that would then sort of carry Bellamy and Clark through the rest of the season, where they're sort of like foils and then partners. Yeah. So it's like not Bellamy versus Clark. Like they're still at odds, but they're not antagonists. They, I mean, they kind of think that they are, but they're not narratively. And he gets his first two really deeply humanizing moments of vulnerability, both with Adam and then also in the way we see him connecting with Charlotte, where he's given a degree of depth that he didn't have before. Yes, exactly. And also like what Bellamy's talking about, like what he's worried about as a leader in 103 has taken a dramatic shift. He's still worried about maintaining control through like giving the people what they want. But, you know, in that first conversation by the tree... Murphy says something like, what are you going to do? Everyone's getting upset. You know, we got to kill Jasper. And he says, they'll be happy once I get them food. So this is Bellamy. Now there's a kind of like a shift away from whatever, you know, like as long as everybody remembers, they have to check with me for things. Now he's like, I got to feed these kids, you know? So there's the beginnings of him taking responsibility for the group in something more like an actual leadership role, as opposed to just manipulating them in order to prevent them from communicating with the Ark. Right. Clark and Bellamy have two separate storylines in 103. They're together in 102 and 103, they're separate. They kind of go on their separate journeys. And yeah, you know, like if in a film or TV, if they want you to identify with or sympathize with a character, you give them a dog or a child. <laughs> you know, this is like the universal cinematic signal of like, here's a person you're supposed to like is you give them like an animal or a child for them to like bond with and be nice to. So like when Bellamy's out in the woods and Charlotte shows up and he's all sweet, it like is weird sort of like, you kill anything, you might be gonna have yeah. like, a little bit weird. But like he's being, you know, but you can see in that moment when he sees her and Murphy is about to be mean and he's like, hey, hey, hey. Like you said, like he, he can kind of see him switch and look at her and see Octavia. In Bellamy's little lizard brain, it sort of clicks and go like, small child, take care of. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, that moment where like when Adam says like the woods are no place for a little girl and she's like, I'm not little. And then he has that fraction of a smile. And it's like, I know exactly who you're thinking about in that moment. You've heard that one before. It's involuntary. You know, in that moment, Bellamy could not choose not to take Charlotte under his wing. He's such a dad. He's such a dad. But, you know, that is a very clear signal from the show that they are trying to get you on Bellamy's side. Yeah. Not that he's still not fucking up majorly, but like this is a sign like here are his humongous redemptive moments. Number one, he immediately is like, I'm going to take care of this child and I'm going to do my best to sort of like alleviate her fears and help her feel more secure and safe and take care of her. And then, you know, with Adam, you have the moment of him recognizing like A, not being able to kill Adam. Which is something I think that like all of us as viewers, 
I think most people can identify much more easily with Bellamy in that moment than with Clark. You know, most people when confronted with that situation are going to react more like Bellamy than like Clark's. And the way that scene is shot, it's also through Bellamy's point of view. We're watching Clark just as he's watching Clark's. You know, we're really, really being prompted to kind of be on his side in a way that absolutely was not the case in 102. So yes, that was one big shift I hadn't really noticed how big the shift was in terms of the way that the show was framing Bellamy as a character and the way that we're supposed to feel about him. And this might actually be a good place to transition to Octavia. Yes. Because the other big difference in 102 and 103 for Bellamy, in 102, he spends the entire time being like turbo dick, Mm -hmm. you know, overprotective, like all right, I'm leaving camp, so I'm putting this other man in charge of you to make sure that you don't do anything bad. Which is just like, again, you know, the nadir of (laughs) season one (laughs) Bellamy being just like a totally overproductive, semi-misogynistic dickwad to his sister. Versus 103, where he and Octavia are on opposite sides, but he's totally dropped that whole nobody better touch my sister thing. That is gone. And we're told that it's over when Murphy tries to be a dick to Adam at the beginning and Bellamy says, hey, hey, no, he took his punishment, it's over, which is also another thing that very much signals like Bellamy's not an unreasonable leader. You know, right, like he's right, really trying. Right. Like Murphy's the asshole. Murphy's the one who's out of control and Bellamy's trying to keep things under control. So I thought that was really interesting that Bellamy's and Octavia's relationship, I think, is categorically different in 103 from 102. Like they're still at odds, but the reason that they're at odds is totally different. And in 103, it's because they're on opposite sides of the should we mercy kill Jasper yet argument. And in 102, it's because Bellamy's like, no one's going to fuck my sister. It's a transition from 102 to 103 where they really begin to walk back that sort of CW cliche babe plot with her. Yes. And she becomes more than just the sex object. Yes. Because the other thing that I really noticed this time in 102, Bellamy gets all the blame for being, you know, sort of like misogynistic prick in 102. For sort of being the one who's like, Adam has to like guard my sister so that she doesn't kiss anyone. So no boys touch her, right? But if you take a step back from what the characters do to how the story is framing Octavia, everything about Octavia's story in 102 sexualizes her. And 101. And 101. So 101, you know, she wants to flirt when they're heading into the woods. The first thing she says to Clark is, just so you know, he's mine. So she's kind of set up as being like boy crazy. And then we get the moment where she strips down. And then in 102, when Bellamy says to Adam, I'm leaving, you have to make sure that no one touches her. He could just mean you have to make sure that no one hurts her. Right. But the way that Adam and then the show interprets that is like relentlessly as... Well, obviously, the thing that we have to protect is her, like, sexual purity. Well, and that's how Octavia interprets it, too, because she, like, grabs that other random dude and goes into the dropship. She basically sort of dares Adam to come after her by being like, look at me, breaking the rule. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You told me not to fuck random dudes, so I'm going to do that because that's what Octavia Blake is all about. Right. 
This is a show that really, that especially after season one, got huge accolades for being really feminist, you know, for having like great, strong female characters and like female leaders. And that's all true. But if there's like one giant black mark on season one in terms of the show's feminist bona fides, it's Octavia in the first two episodes where they lean so heavily on that really stereotypical way of framing Octavia as a character who is heavily sexualized, who's presented really sexually by the show, you know, by like the direction, and who is treated as a sexual object by like every man around her. In a way that is weirdly at odds with the fact that it's clear that Adam is her first time. Yeah, exactly. A, because like, obviously, because she went from like living under the floor boards to like being locked up in solitary but they have that little sort of moment where she's kind of shy for a second and he's like no no it's okay so we're clearly i think meant to understand that you know octavia is a virgin it doesn't come from a place of feeling like octavia perceives herself and owns it herself it feels like it's something that's being done to her by the way the men around her look at her yes. including both internally the characters and externally the show Everything about Octavia in 101 and 102 is dictated by the male gaze. She is like wholly defined by the male gaze, both by the male characters, the way that the male characters understand her in the show, and also by the gaze of the camera. I think that's why Octavia feels like so completely different, even later in season one, and then obviously in season two and three from the Octavia we meet is because they stop doing that. She stops being so heavily defined by the male gaze. 103 is the first time that we really see sort of the beginning of badass fights for what's right Octavia. So when she rips a metal bar off the wall to brace the dropship door so that they won't come up and kill Jasper. The fearlessness that makes her come off in the first couple episodes like a sort of stereotypical like wild child rebel... They took the bones of the Octavia that they created and they shifted it where they're using those traits to tell a bigger story than just a hot party chick who wants to like make out with boys. They're taking that stubbornness and that willingness to defy her brother and that rebel who's been waiting to come out and they redirect it to a much more interesting story about her being a vital part of the team helping keep Jasper alive. I think that relationship, the Jasper-Octavia relationship, and kind of locking her into being part of that squad, I think it gives her something to do that's unrelated to boy drama. To me, Octavia starts to become an interesting character when she's given relationships that aren't sexual or her brother. Yes. It's solidifying her as a vital member of that team. I think it's the relationship between her and Jasper, which I always forget was pushed so heavily in the first few episodes that I wonder if they were intending that to turn into a romantic thing before they brought in Lincoln. Yeah. I wonder too, because they did really kind of hint very heavily at that. Yeah. The first couple episodes is a lot of Jasper Octavia, but it's nicely retconned, I think, because their friendship continues to be so important. It doesn't really go anywhere explicitly sexual after him sort of staring slack jawed at her after she strips down by the river. But then so is Clark and everyone else. So it's kind of like, you know. (laughs) So to me, it feels like that's where she really starts to gain some richness as a character when we see that she has more to offer than just being like the babe. Yes, because the first episode, she really is just the babe. 
episode three is where they really find her. Yeah. There's signs earlier on, like you're saying, there's certain like in her fierceness. And then I think I noticed this time, which I hadn't really noticed before in 102, right before she sees the glowing butterfly and has, you know, goes off into the woods and finds the whole colony of them. She's sitting in one of those seats sharpening a shiv which is one of those where I saw it this time and I was like oh hi Octavia there you are. Like, that's the girl who's gonna be you know like stabbing grounders in the chest with a sword by the end of this season all right yep <laughs> but I don't think they really completely knew what they were doing with Octavia as opposed to with this kind of like semi-generic rebellious little sister character before they hit 103. I think 103 is where they hit their stride. And I think before I remember always thinking like, well, it's because of, you know, Wells dying at the end. And that's true. That is the kind of moment where the show announces what it's going to be and doesn't look back. But I think it's not just Wells, you know, it's everything about the show in 103 is where it really shifts into being the show that it's going to be. And all the characters and the character arcs and dynamics slide into the groove that they're going to stay in for the rest of the season. So should we end with the end of Wells? Uh, <sighs> so sad. When you were talking before, earlier in the podcast, about Wells' invisibility, it's so perfectly appropriate that the way his death and the aftermath happens is part of that same narrative, too. Yeah. He dies alone, out in the woods, presumably keeping watch, I guess. And that then the question of what actually happened to him takes so long to come to light. It all feels of a piece with him sort of moving in his own orbit with nobody really seeing him, like seeing the reality of him. Looking at it in that context, it's even more devastating. There are three places in this episode where I always cry. The well scene, I actually can't even watch. Yeah. I'm listening to it, like, I'm like, but I'm like staring at the wall until it's over because I just can't because it's just so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. And I think even with the invisibility of Wells, it's even perpetuated in his death. He dies because when Charlotte looks at him, she sees his father. He dies because Charlotte can't see Wells. Right? Oh, God. Yeah. All she sees is someone that he's not. She sees his father and not even his father she sees this kind of like specter of the horrific you know arbitrary power of the ark to take away her family so even in his own death everything about wells's death erases him further you know he dies because he's being erased in some way and then they don't find him for a while. And then the reasons for and responsibility for his murder get misattributed again. So it's just, I mean, it's absolutely devastating. What happens to Wells? The way that he's just effaced and is constantly the victim of these patterns of misattributions of credit and blame. I mean, it's just like makes you want to choke on the injustice. It's horrible. And and particularly, I think the story that the show is telling us of what's happening on the ground versus on the arc, the Griffins play the same role and the Jahas play like opposite roles. Yes. And yeah. it's framed so clearly for us. And so it's, it's so devastating that in a different version of the story, Wells becoming Charlotte's protector because he is so kind and because he would understand if she explained it to him exactly why she feels the way she feels about his dad. 
And they're never given that chance. When you were talking, I was thinking, other than Clark again at the very end, I think probably the only people on Earth who see Wells are Bellamy, for sure. Bellamy does see Wells and see who he really is. But he can't do anything about it, other than sort of telling Wells that he sees him. And then talking to him about his feelings for Clark in 102, but, in, you know, not in a very kind way. That can't really produce like a real connection for them because of the situation. And then I think the other person who actually sees Wells, at least some, is Finn. Yeah. Finn does see Wells. This is why he has the talk with Clark that he has. But again, that allows Finn to give Clark the kind of hint or the push that she needs in order to reconcile with Wells. But I don't know that Wells ever knows that Finn saw him. So it's, I don't know, it's bittersweet. So here's my question for you, and I wonder this a lot. Do you think Wells was in love with Clark? I really don't. I don't either, but it's interesting to me that everyone else does. Yeah, me too. That that is like the automatic assumption. Yeah. Which, yeah, I don't think so. I definitely think that it's true that Wells loves Clark more than he loves any other living person. Yes. And I think that he loves her much, much more than your average pair of teenage best friends. But I don't think... That it's romantic. Yeah, it isn't like that to me either. But I noticed for the first time how often other characters blatantly make that assumption and state that explicitly to Wells and to Clark. Like that's just everyone else's context for it. And I wonder, is that exposition that we're meant to take as valid or is that again the reality of Wells is invisible and everyone's projecting a different, much simpler thing on it? Yeah. And I could see in terms of the writers and show and producers intent, I could actually see it going either way. Yeah. I think you could make a case that the reason that characters keep implying heavily over and over again that Wells is in love with Clark is because because Wells is in love with Clark and he just won't say it. You know, so this is the characters delivering information yeah. about a character. That's the CW teen show explanation. Yes, I think you could make that case. And I don't think that there's anything in the show that would enable you to like definitively refute that. I think you'd have to say that that is a valid interpretation. Sure. But I don't think that it's makes an interpretation that Wells is not in love with her per se, but rather just loves her very, very deeply. I don't think that makes that invalid. Like, I don't think you, that you could refute that interpretation either. Yeah. And so I guess it's a matter of, I prefer the latter. I was going to say like, it's more interesting if he's not in love with her, but that's not really what I mean. I think what I mean is that to assume that the reason that Wells does what he does is because he's in love with Clark in a sort of like traditionally romantic sense is the simpler explanation, both character-wise and narratively. And so I prefer the other explanation, which is that he's not romantically in love with her, but rather just like loves her more than anyone else alive, loves her more than an average friend, loves her maybe something more like a sibling, which, you know, Bellamy, when he looks at Wells, Bellamy sees in Wells what Bellamy did for his sister. So I think there's a kind of like, there's a hint of that too. Like there's a parallel between Bellamy and Octavia and Wells and Clark that Bellamy himself highlights. Yeah. So for me, 
the kind of like potential that that opens up in terms of thinking about different kinds of love and the way that they're portrayed in this show and, and sort of love in general being a really powerful and important force. Love that doesn't really fit into one of those neat categories we have, which is like platonic romantic familial. Right, right, right. This is something else entirely. And then also because, like you said, you know, like that opens up the possibility that what's happening is that other people are looking at Wells and sort of like slotting him into a template that they have. Right. That kind of like enables them to simplify him, to miss all the depth and the nuance to Wells like everyone always does in the show yeah and otherwise you know so i think that would be why if you you know if somebody asked me like why do i prefer one explanation over the other that would be why i would prefer the interpretation that he's not in love with clark that makes a lot of sense to me because i i feel the same way too i feel like to me the closest that it comes to romantic love is that there's moments where it orbits around something that feels more like a chivalric devotion you know yeah but not in a way that feels romantic or sexual just in a way where she is the person that he would take a bullet for and there isn't a simple name or explanation for why that is there's a lot of pathos to the idea that once again the real complexity of who wells jaha is is ignored and overlooked by everybody else and i think particularly in the context of the conversation we've been having about his invisibility it feels like maybe if that constantly running thread of Wells's invisibility was intentional, that potentially does lend some credence to the idea that even the thing that everyone thinks that they know about him is also false and misleading, is also not the real Wells. It's also a misinterpretation or a misunderstanding of who he is. Of who he is and what drives him. Which is the story of Wells' Jaha, which is such a fucking sad story. It is. But I mean, I think the Charlotte thing, we talked about last time, I think, like, narratively, Wells is too good to live, you know, like, (laughs) Wells is solving too many problems too fast. You know, that the sort of test of like, does killing this character open more story than it closes? Right. Then the Wells thing passes that with flying colors. Absolutely. It's huge. But I think the other thing that it does, if we step away from Wells as a character and and look at the story of his murderer of Charlotte, you know, I think Charlotte's story is also just heartbreakingly tragic and also really, really fascinating and important, both in terms of the way that Charlotte as a character allows us a window into what the arcs political and legal system does to its people and particularly its children. Yeah. And we get a little bit more of that in the beginning of season two when we get Murphy's story about how he wound up in the skybox and like, you know, what happened to his parents. But Charlotte is the first instance. Charlotte is a victim of the system. Yeah. You know, she's incarcerated because her parents were floated and she was so profoundly traumatized by that loss that when they came to take away the last remnants of her family, she lost her mind, which is like completely understandable. Because she's like 10. Yeah, she's like a little girl and her parents die. And then these people show up and be like, we got to take all your shit because other people need it. Like, of course, they're going to freak out. And then they throw her in jail for it. Of course, on Wells' side, the tragedy is that he dies because Charlotte can't see him, you know, because she thinks that he's someone else. But that's also a tragedy for Charlotte, you know, because, like, that's driven by that, like, deep, inescapable trauma for her. Like, she's our first character who really is shaped by PTSD. She can't stop reliving the moment when she lost her parents. 
in terms of just sort of like building up some background on like the environment on the arc and what these kids are coming from and how they became who they became. Like Charlotte is one of those instances where there's probably more kids among the hundred like her than not. You know, it's probably more kids like Charlotte than there are people who are in there for killing someone. So she's sort of like the typical example. So all these kids are like victims multiple times over. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, you know, over all three of these episodes, and that I think continues really all throughout the show, but particularly in season one, to sort of play into how different characters respond to different situations, is to think about who are our characters who were deliberate intentional criminals? And who were our characters who were imprisoned for something that wasn't an intentional crime? Yeah. Which is different from goodness versus badness, you know, but there's something about somebody like Miller or Monty or Bellamy shooting Jaha or Murphy, who we learn later committed arson on the guard who floated his parents. They have a thicker skin in some ways, having made that choice or being punished for something that they know that they did. Yeah. Where the characters who were locked up for something that either wasn't a crime or should never have been a crime, people like Clark and Octavia and Charlotte, watching the way that they respond to different situations and watching who has what kind of relationship to the system that they came from on the arc. In season two, when the worlds are merged, who has what kind of relationship with the adults because of what the adults represent to them. There isn't a clear, oh, the criminals act one way and the Clarks and Octavius act different way. You can't draw a black and white line like that. But it is interesting to think, you know, in the context of how people handle what the ground turns them into, like what the ground makes of them. Yeah. I think in some ways is shaped by, or you can draw connections to how they ended up there. And if there was something sort of fundamentally unjust about them ending up there at all, or if they're sort of like, this is just another set of circumstances that I'm adapting to. Right. Or like even the, you know, the kids who are criminals, a lot of them, there's a kind of like class difference. You know, so even the ones who maybe who committed crimes, they deliberately chose to break those laws because they kind of already saw themselves as outside of the system or in opposition to it or, or in conflict with it versus I think, you know, characters like Clark and Octavia might fall into that because like she says, you know, she's locked up for being born. So in some ways, her whole existence is predicated on her knowledge that like she's illegal you know what I mean right like, she's right. like the system is like never wanted her to exist whereas like Clark and Charlotte are are characters I think where it's more like the system sort of turned against them in a way that they never could have foreseen right it was seemingly benevolent and in their favor and then suddenly you know one day the world turned upside down you know like flipped around and suddenly they're victims of it for Charlotte for just like inexplicable reasons Yeah. It's like she had a pet dog who was cuddling with her every single day of her life and then for no reason turned around one day and mauled her. And that level of trauma of like something that I trusted turned around and destroyed me or tried to kill me. Yeah. Or took everything away from me or hurt me so profoundly. And I cannot understand why. All I know is that it was this thing that did it to me. You know, like all you can do is just sort of attach a face to the thing that happened. The only explanation is that it was Thelonious Jaha who floated her parents. That's the only explanation she has. You know, like she clearly has no grasp of what it was her parents did to get floated. Yeah. She has no idea. As far as she knows, it was like one day her life was fine and she had parents. And the next day Jaha came along and put them in an airlock and shot them into space. And then after that, because she was sad, they put her in jail. 
Like, that's Charlotte's existence. So you're right, it is like a completely different relationship to the arc and to the legal system and to what's happened to them. Than like Jasper and Monty have or something like that. Right, who were like, well, yeah, we, we got caught, we were dumbasses. But they knew what they were doing was illegal. Exactly. The thing that I think is so crucial about Charlotte is she's the first of the hundred that we meet who is clearly and inarguably a child. You know, like Octavia is supposed to be 15 or 16, but I feel like for the main delinquents, that's dispensed with pretty quickly. They're not playing them like 16-year-old teenagers, you know, because the actors all look older than that. Yeah. There's a gray area of how old we're supposed to interpret them as. But Charlotte is clearly a child. She responds like a child. She looks like a child. She is a child. And that contextualizes in a lot of ways the perception of the people in the arc, and particularly Abby, who continue to refer to these people as kids. And I think that the hundred, they don't want to see themselves as kids. And we, in some ways, think of them or see them as like young adults. Mm-hmm. And I think the reminder that people like Bellamy and Clark and Octavia and Wells and Finn, who can more or less take care of themselves, are outliers and not everybody, I think is an important reminder. You know, like the handful of characters that we've met, they're all of an age. They're all on the older end of the, you know, spectrum. They were all probably coming up soon for their review. Like, they're all probably approaching 18. And they adapt pretty quickly to taking leadership roles and trying to survive and enjoying their freedom and finding their feet on the ground a little bit more. And I think that giving us somebody like Charlotte, who was never in a million billion years going to be equipped to survive on Earth, in this free-for-all of no structure. Like, she doesn't have the resources. She doesn't have the ability to adapt in the same way that somebody like Clark and Bellamy have adapted. And I think that's an important thing for us to remember that, like, among this group, there are people who are children. They're not all 17 going on 18. That they're kids. And we see it particularly in, in the sense of responsibility that we see, like, when everyone finds out that it was Charlotte, Bellamy's sense of tremendous guilt and responsibility for having tried to take care of a kid and it backfiring so horribly and feeling like this is his fault. It reminds us how much pressure is on Clark and Bellamy on the ground and on Abby and everyone in the Ark trying to like keep these kids alive and save them to have somebody who is inarguably a child and that we're seeing it through the lens of a child's trauma and the complete inability of somebody like Charlotte to be prepared to handle panthers and grounders. It ups the stakes overall in a really significant way. Or even like not even panthers and grounders for Charlotte. I mean, like even setting aside panthers and grounders, like the beginning of 102 when Wells is walking into the camp and the absolute chaos that's going on there. Just imagine being like one of the the little kids, like let's say that there's a handful of kids there between the ages of like nine and 12. You had a family maybe and then you're thrown in jail, which is at least a fairly structured life, even if you don't, if if it's not like nurturing. And then you're flung down to the ground and suddenly you're in an environment that is totally unfamiliar and there is literally no one to take care of you and nowhere to go. No guarantee of like any kind of safety or sustenance or shelter. You know, like imagine how fucking terrifying and traumatizing it would be to be like a little girl in that delinquent camp those first days 
You're surrounded by like screaming teenagers who are doing nothing but like fighting and fucking. You know, you're nine years old. You don't know how to take care of yourself. And no one is looking out for you. Things like everyone fighting over the dead kid's clothes. Someone like Charlotte is going to be last in line every time there are resources to hand out. If the way you get those resources is by fighting for them. Yeah. And she even says that all she's been doing since she came down there is like hiding and not being able to sleep, you know, and having yeah. nightmares. So like Charlotte's existence is just horrible. Yeah. They do a really good job of making that so palpably clear yeah. that even when she kills Wells, you know, you don't get mad at Charlotte. You don't hate Charlotte. It is a tragedy on both sides of equal proportions. It's just as tragic for Charlotte. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's a tragedy for Charlotte who does it as well as for Wells who dies. You know, the other really, really centrally important thing that Charlotte does, like as a character, what she does kind of functionally, is that she's really sort of the point in 103. Like I said, you know, uh, Clark and Bellamy are, in, they have separate storylines. They don't interact very much. But Charlotte is what they have in common. And Charlotte is what kind of like brings them together and also makes them foils for each other. Because, you know, like one thing they do so beautifully in this episode is set up how both Bellamy and Clark unwittingly give Charlotte the tools that she will use to kill Wells. So when Charlotte kills Wells, she does it the way that she watched Clark do it. And she sings the song that that Clark sang Adam. Like she watches Clark kill Adam and she sees that it can be this sort of like, I think she understands that Clark is doing something necessary. You know, like killing is like necessary, but it can be kindness or something like that. Yeah. So she does it like Clark does and she sings the song while he's dying like Clark did. Yeah, she wants to be kind about it. She wants to be kind about it. She feels like she, she has to do this, but she does it with the knife that Bellamy gave her. You know, when Bellamy tells her, slay your demons. You know, like one of the really tragic things here is like, this is Bellamy like trying to take care of this little girl. And we see later on in flashbacks that this kind of fear as a demon is what his mother said to him, you know, and like slay your demons is like, this is what he was told as a kid growing up. Yeah. Like this is what he heard every single day when his sister was afraid to go back into the dark. This is what their mother told her and told Bellamy. He's just like repeating to her what he was told. So Charlotte is the product of this, twisted system and so is Bellamy and like the tragedy there is like Bellamy doesn't realize when he says that to her he thinks this is the right thing to say because this is what he was told when he was growing up and also he does not realize that Charlotte won't understand that slay your demons is a metaphor right Bellamy is like when he says like you ever killed something maybe you'll be good at it he means hunting And when he says, slay your demons, if you slay them during the day, you won't slay them at night. He means that as a metaphor. He means that like, hold a knife and say, I won't be afraid. I'm not afraid. Confront your fears and like teaching yourself how to be brave and not actual homicide. Yeah, exactly. So Bellamy sort of unwittingly gives her this a motive and a justification because he misunderstands or or he doesn't recognize the depth of her trauma. You know, all he knows is that she has nightmares and she's afraid. So he gives her like a sort of like a, a, a little metaphor or a mantra and she takes it literally. And then Clark gives her the kind of like, here's where you stab your demon right. to make him die quickly. And then you sing to him. The way that they do that, like it's so carefully done, very nuanced. The way they sort of like balance 
Clark and Bellamy in terms of they are both, they both have equal amounts of totally inadvertent responsibility for what Charlotte does. And we see them, they're sort of like linked together as characters in that both of them, they have in common that like automatic instinct to try to comfort and take care of Charlotte. So if one of three is where like, you know, they, they kind of have that moment where they recognize each other. But that's also the moment where Clark, you know, when Clark later says to Bellamy, when he finds out he didn't kill Jaha, she says, you're not a killer. She knows that because she, he couldn't kill Adam. So like, that's the moment where they sort of see each other. This is the moment in 103 where we see them being sort of paralleled as characters, both in terms of their instincts to take care of the hundred, but also... This is the very first time, you know, like at the end of season two, they're going to pull that lever together. But this is the first time the narrative sort of unites them through guilt, which is really interesting. Yeah, that's true. And that then when Charlotte dies, that when Charlotte dies, there are two deaths directly on both of their hands, you know, in a way that is fundamentally different from Bellamy at this stage still thinking that he has murdered Jaha to Clark Mercy killing Adam. There's things that they've done because they had to do. And then there's this sort of sense of like things beginning to spiral out of control. Yeah, things that happen as an unforeseen consequences of choices that they made, you know, as leaders or whatever. It's really it's the first thing that happens where it's like something that only Clark and Bellamy can understand of each other. Yeah. And we accumulate more and more and more of those moments over the course of the show. But I feel like Wells's death followed by Charlotte's death is really the first thing where it's like that kind of weight of being a leader that only the two of them can share with each other. And they don't yes. like each other yet, really, but they have that shared thing that like only the two of them really get. You know, I think we see that beginning to be really solidified here. Yes, I think so, too. And then, of course, it gets... Well, we'll talk about 104 next time, but, you know, but 104 is the is the sort of chickens come home to roost episode in terms of the way that both of them have chosen to behave and, and chosen to go about acting as leaders and so on. But, you know, in that sense, like, so so Wells's death, it's it's terrible and it's tragic and it's sad, but like, it is so fundamental to the fabric of the show and of the story, both because of Wells and also because of Charlotte. You couldn't take that out of the show and have anything resembling the story or the characters or the relationships that we're going to have for the rest of the season. Okay, so we'll be back in two weeks to recap episodes 104 and 105. So yeah, thanks for listening and we will see you in two weeks. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye.